Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Saget? Yes, sir! I don't know who I am! Did IQs just drop shot? I could have been. I have a plan. I like this shit! Dance off, bro! It is your Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. So I just wanted to wish everyone a happy new year. And the way that Atlantic SC is going to be starting out the new year is by talking about Star Wars The Last Jedi. We decided to wait a little bit uh, to let it, things cool down. Uh, and and we, we brought on a guest today, Kevin Brackett from Real Spoilers. Thanks again for coming on. We really had a fun time talking to you about Cronus and Mimic. And so we figured, you know what, let's start off the year and bring on Kevin again uh, to celebrate the uh, the Last Jedi with us. So welcome aboard, sir. Hey, guys. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on. And, I mean, we, we've seen the reaction, uh, and we've decided on the episode we weren't going to address it. We found it useful to resist. So if you've tuned in to hear us take a shit on 40-year-old man babies, oh, well, this isn't the place. All right, so anyway, let's get into this. Let's unpack this bitch. When I found you. I saw raw, untamed power, and beyond that, something truly special. always been there. But now it's awake. And I need help. I've seen this raw strength only once before. It didn't scare me enough then. It does now. Kill it. If you have to. That's the only way to become what you were meant to be. Jedi is a film directed by Ryan Johnson that stars Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Mark Hamill, Kylo Ren, and (laughs) Carrie Fisher. So before we get into this, uh, I wanted to know, I mean, let's let's talk about um, 
I don't know, first impressions. I mean, did you guys like it first and foremost? Well, so I think this is something I've been mulling over since I saw it. I saw it in an advanced screening. I had already purchased my tickets for a Thursday night screening, so I saw it a few days later. And then I, I gave a little bit of distance. I saw it with my son a week later. So, you know, about a week, maybe eight days after my second viewing. And every time I saw it, my opinion changed a little bit. And I think it was mainly based on expectations. So I've grown up with Star okay. Wars. I've been a fan my whole life. We were watching the video on VHS at a very young age of, of A New Hope and, and all of the original trilogy. Of course, I was at the theaters. I was, uh, you know, a teenager, a young teenager when The Phantom Menace came out and the prequels. And that was my first time that I was able to experience aside from the re-release, but that was my first time seeing a new Star Wars movie in theaters. So, of course, I was excited about that. Uh, you know, and those movies, of course, have their pros and cons we won't get into. But, uh, you know, I, I, I've, <laughs> I've always been excited about Star Wars and new films coming out. And so I had set up my expectations so high because how do you how do you help but to do that? And one of my biggest expectations was for the character of Luke Skywalker. So we've been waiting since Return of the Jedi because let's be honest, we, we see Luke Skywalker for a few seconds at the end of The Force Awakens. So we really didn't mm -hmm. get to see the character do anything. I mean, literally, he doesn't say anything. He gives a look. And so I was <laughs> I, I had my expectations built up so high for, okay, now we're going to see Luke. He's going to train Rey and he's going to be that Jedi master. And we're going to see him teaching her using all of his amazing force skills that he's built up over the years. And we're going to see him just kick ass for lack of a better word. And, uh, you know, and, and then in the movie, we got what we got. And so I struggled with that and I had to really reflect on it. And upon the second viewing, I was getting a little bit more used to the idea that Ryan Johnson went the way he did and he had his reasons for it. And I, and getting closer to accepting that this is the Star Wars we're getting. This is the new Star Wars. The people, the powers that be are making this to be Star Wars. And they're the ones in control of it. And they have the reasons, uh, you know, so you can agree with it or not agree with it. But this is what we're getting. And so I put another week between that. And when I went and took my son to see it, he's eight and he absolutely loved it. Um, but that third viewing, I liked the movie more than I ever had before. Uh, I was always entertained by it. The first time I saw it, entertained, but very disappointed leaving it. Second time, entertained more, uh, picked up on things I didn't see the first time, enjoyed some homages to other films that we can get into, but uh, appreciated the cinematography more. Things like that when I was actually... Uh, I knew what was going to happen so I could just look at the movie and admire it a little more. But the third time, that extra week had let me accept that this was Luke's story. This is where they decided to go with it. And I can't change that. I, I can't ever do anything else. And it was my high expectations that led me to not enjoy it as much because I was very disappointed with how they handled the Luke character. And so once I was able to accept more that that is the way it is and, and, and because of the reasons they had, I was able to be okay with it. And so I've always enjoyed it. I, I think it's a flawed film. I, I'm not going to say it's perfect. There are a lot of issues with the film. I have issues with story decisions. I have, I have issues with some pacing. Um, I have issues with some CGI that I thought looked really sloppy. But on the other hand, there's some there's some really great special effects in CGI. There's some really great costumes, and uh, there there are some really bad lines, I think, and there are some really good lines. So I can see the good and the bad of it, but overall, I enjoy it. It's an entertaining film. And so I just think that the interesting question you have to ask yourself is, are your high expectations, are, are you setting yourself up for failure by your high expectations of, of a property uh, of characters that you love so much? 
should you be able to kind of, I don't want to say check out, but go along for the ride. Like you're there, not as a creative, <laughs> you're not making star Wars. You're there to enjoy it and go to the theaters and escape yeah. into this amazing world they've created for you. And so, uh, is it better to maybe allow yourself to enjoy it and, and be there for the ride instead of being disappointed when it doesn't go the way you want it to? No, no you're, t- you're totally correct. I mean, I, I, it, it does and doesn't help as well that the film itself is by nature divisive. Jason's going to talk about that in more technical terms as to how it exactly divides its own imagery and such like that. But um, generally, I had almost, uh, I wouldn't say as strong a reaction as you uh, in terms of how expectations came into it, but I definitely went for the same thing. uh, Maybe this is something that will only apply to people at the time. You know, here now, when the film comes out, the expectation of what happens between each of these films will seem like they were bigger deals in retrospect than they'll see if you are a kid in 20 years watching these films back to back like you do the originals uh you just know these are the stories these this is how it is and that's 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 you don't get to really question it just like you said kevin it is a these are decided premeditated and told stories we are audience members not the writers of this series that's entirely true uh first experience wise and i guess against expectations couldn't help really have not have not having expectations because we had done that Force Awakens episode, which uh, I'll be following up some notes on later in the show, just to give you to, to update you on where we are with some of the information in that. But uh, I mean, we were talking a little bit about where things would likely end up in the Last Jedi, so I mean, that's expectation. I mean. On the show, we've we've always been very adamant about trying to remove as much expectation as possible. That's why we don't promote trailers anymore. That's why we don't discuss trailers even. First impressions, again, we all had that similar issue. I think we can all agree that we all had expectations going into this because we're all fans of Star Wars. And that is yeah. a detriment when you think you own something that you don't. Uh, and we don't. And that's basically where, uh, in this case, not in all cases, but in this case, where the story should realistically end. Because we are only setting ourselves up for a fall. And I think this film was a good reality check regarding that. It's from the very yeah. beginning. The, the lightsaber chucking away is just it. one of a million moments that say, catch yourself on. Forget your ring theory crap. Forget your ideas about trying to make mirror parallel films. It was one film. Let's not pretend that this is how Star Wars is, you know. Star Wars has always been something of a mess. And the new uh, the new <laughs> film is a mess. Uh, I, I'm not in a, I, I want to qualify that a bit because the idea of mess, people perceive, obviously, is, is bad for Negative, it's, yeah. it's dirty. It gets all over you. But Star Wars is inherently messy. It's weird. And The Last Jedi felt to me more, especially on a second viewing, because I got rid of that expectation of how are they going to kill Carrie Fisher? How are they going to kill Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill's character? Uh, how, are they, uh, how is Rey going to kill? How is Snoke going to be this big guy? You know, all this shit. All the shit that you bring in with you because you know how Star Wars runs, so you you know how to run the show yourself, man. Uh, that all clears away after you watch it the first time. The second time, you just kind of get to uh, be along for the ride proper. And I think most kids who are just sort of not really too entrenched in the story will be very similar. Uh, they'll get that clean break we all wish we had. <laughs> and uh, and uh, they'll get to enjoy it like we probably did on the second. For me, the second viewing, I was uh, I was a I was a fucking mess. I, I actually cried a lot in this film, and I, I mean, and then Star Wars and was it was it when that pork was getting eaten by Chewbacca? Was that the? Yeah, oh well, no, that that made me laugh out of <laughs> shock and horror. I didn't even understand what the fuck that was about the first time I watched it. Uh, but then the second time, I got to 
when you get to take it a little slower and uh, digest it a bit, you can make a lot of what's done here and the decisions. Uh, and I think the best thing, if we're talking about the film as a whole in general without going too deep into anything, if we're just keeping it at a kind of surface level, the messiness is the best way to tell a story like this. Uh, and I'm not saying, right, structure-wise, there are beats that are somewhat, like, I, you would say, subverted, I guess, you know, I, I, true, okay? There are things that are expected of general story. You don't kill off your major background villain halfway through a film. That kind of hurts the narrative because it has us have to adjust to what exactly w we think is a bad guy in this story. It's a good twist the second time around because you know when it's coming you can brace yourself a little bit and see what they're actually trying to do. But I, I stand that that first viewing made the death of Snoke very difficult to come back from and recalibrate from, and I definitely hold to that. I think that that is a mess that actually can hurt people's enjoyment of the film. But uh, when it comes to messiness in how things are handled in Star Wars and how the story takes diversions and adventures. Uh, it's all done for audience fun. It's all done with the mind of having people be somewhere and enjoy something more than it is to be told this is the next thorough telling of a Star Wars story, you know? The story is there. The Ben Solo and Rey story that forms the crux of the narrative here with Luke Skywalker in the background of that. That is the story people are interested and invested in. That's the kind of hit. And then we kind of get the Finn and Rose story and they go to Cantabite, the casino planet. And it's like one of those things that's definitely divisive. It's definitely like it's a, it's it's kind of not really necessary to this story. It's a different story. But that that reminds me of all the fun times that Star Wars has been fucking weird. You know, the first film itself, as we've said often, is saved in editing. And you can fucking tell because it's weird as balls. It's, it's full of space wizards. I don't think people understand today how fucking weird Star Wars was when it came out. It's the fucking space voices in your head when you're flying your spaceship down the trench run. <laughs> it, it, oh, this giant moon-shaped beam planet destroyer. It's fucking stupid. <laughs> There's a bear who's with them and they play space chess and they're fucking rusty old fucking spaceship. And they they land uh, in, in, on, on the bad guy's spaceship and he's a fucking chrome-ass black suited dude that kills an old man with a laser sword it's stupid it's a stupid film that happens to fit perfectly into the hero story canon and happens to be an excellent example of it but it also just happens to be full of weird batshit nothing i mean even empire strikes back it opens with what would technically seem as an unnecessary intro of luke's character being taken by the fucking Space Sasquatch. Yeah, the Wampa. <laughs> and, uh, and using his uh, his force power to get his lightsaber to chop his arm to have to get shelter in the cold. It's not really anything to do with the real story. It, it only exists to show us a bit about the character and a bit uh, where he is now and also to show that, to give us a scene where he's crazy enough to think that he sees Ghost Obi-Wan telling him to go see Yoda somewhere. I mean, it's, it's kind of stupid. It's kind of not really sensical. We've also got... Boba Fett in that story, the most exhilarating... He is literally... The, the parallel in this film is uh, a robot, a, a, a voiceless robot who spots Rose and and Finn walking around and tells the bad guys where they are. That's That was that was Boba Fett's role in that film. They set him up like, find him! 
and he's in the exact same place Darth Vader is anyway, so it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> so the there's shit like that is it's stupid. And then Return of the Jedi is a fucking mess. It's just a train wreck. It's it's, it's all over the fucking place, and it's almost the closest to the Last Jedi structure wise there is because there is this one main narrative that's interesting that keeps getting cut away to stupid wacky bullshit in space and political dramas elsewhere in space and battles in space and it's all so unnecessary but that's the point nothing is necessary in star wars there is a story you want told and there's a story that is being told and i think that the adventurous angle the messiness of the last jedi is probably my favorite element of it because it feels like a proper film to me. It feels like it has nothing to do with the canon and expect expectations and supposed ideas of what people want a Star Wars film to be. It is very much just a film that somebody wanted to make that happens to involve Star Wars. And we get that's why we end up with horse racing off the casino planet and fucking uh, yeah, a mutiny aboard spaceship. Who cares? You know, and, <laughs> and, and shit like that. You know, it's, it's all kind of... It's good. It's it's fine. Lots of it has got more fun moments than not fun moments, and that's all that matters. That's why we get Leia, space Superman, saving her ass from fucking the vacuum of space. Because who gives? It's fun. It's a cool image. <laughs> it's 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 you could take it seriously and be like, fuck this. It ruined my expectations. The second viewing, I was like, this is beautiful. You know, this is a beautiful moment. I don't care how ridiculous and absurd it is. And, and, and uh, the whole film kind of feels like that. You can't... It's hard to weigh up an anthology of films before this where a space puppet gives the uh, one of the main characters advice on how to burn down a building you've never seen before. I mean, it's full of stupid crap like that. And you can't weigh it up and go like, you know what? He shouldn't have told him that. He should have actually just told him to keep it because he loves it so much. That's how that character really is. You know, who gives a shit? <laughs> And that's how I feel. That's one of the reasons I love Last Jedi is because it is goofy as balls. <laughs> I don't know how to follow this up now because, mm. you know, to me, it all is serious shit. And I like this stuff. <laughs> yeah, we're <well>, <laughs> the other side of it. Yeah. You know, I yeah, mean, I get that but too. <laughs> I, how can I put it? Uh, I think what, with regards to expectations for me, I, I was, I remember. I'll, I'll explain my experience with Force Awakens. I remember my experience with Force Awakens and I, I kind of almost ruined the movie for my family when I went to see it. And I, I remember talking about this. I don't remember when. I don't know if I did it on the Force Awakens episode. I don't go back and listen to our shit. But <laughs> I um, I was trying to go in this time expecting to have the same reaction as I did when I watched The Force Awakens, which meant that I initially wasn't going to enjoy it as much. Just bringing that down for myself was one of those ways of kind of, you know, just heading in with a level head as opposed to going in and lumping on a bunch of shit that I wanted to see happen. Obviously, Skywalker. I mean, this is my childhood hero that we're talking about, and I always carry him around with me somehow. I always like that character. I really think he's great. And I remember having a conversation with my girlfriend just before I was going to go to my screening of The Last Jedi. And I had had a weird night sleep. This is how fucked up I am with Star Wars. Yeah, this how is how much I like these for Exactly. For me, <laughs> it's really one of those things that disturbs me. I've had, had, I've had really good sleeps since seeing it. And that, that's, that's terrible. When you think about it, that's not logical for me to put this much weight 
on like what Lee's calling stupid shit and for me is kind of insulting <laughs> because I, if I look at it, Star Wars and Formula One are both my religions. These are the things that I have that are mine and I kind of carry around. Formula One is something that I carry around because it's, it's a link that I have with my father, but Star Wars is one that I have with my mother. You know what I mean? These are the movies that she passed on to me and then I kind of bring with me wherever I go. The same thing with the race cars with my dad. These are two parts of my childhood that I have sandwiched together and those are the two things that i'll wake up in the middle of the night to watch and so when i was talking to leslie about how i was feeling i asked her also because she's she's from the harry potter generation and i said to her i says you were you were reading the books as they were going along and i says how did you feel you know when you moved on from book to book to book and she, she explained to me that expectation was there but at the same time she just sees it as another chapter and this is where the story is headed and they'll she knows that there's going to be another one after that and then when she got to the deathly hallows you know she she figured okay well this is going to be an interesting end to all of this and so it kind of quelled a little bit of my expectations and going in and saying, this is, there's another Star Wars after this, not Solo, but there's going to be an episode nine. And so no matter where this story ends up, something else is going to happen after this that might correct some of the things that I didn't particularly enjoy or kind of delve deeper into the things that I actually did like. And so my expectations kind of went out the door. Now, obviously with the, the beats that we we're talking about, like Luke Saber, uh, Luke's uh, chucking the saber over his, over his shoulder uh, and a few other things, you were talking about Snoke dying as well. You know, there are things that I, that I, I met with kind of like enthusiastic reaction where others, I was like, perplexed as to why mm. the fuck that was the choice and at the same time as the movie was going along and my expectations were fading and fading and fading and just letting myself go ahead with what the hell was being presented on screen i found myself enjoying the film more and more and more for all the weirdness like you're talking about yeah, all exactly. the weirdness that he was deciding space lay is another one i mean we could get into the expectations with regards to that or how we actually handled that scene i I, I was sitting next to Jason and Jason, uh, one of my friends, he was, he, he, his reaction was like, what the fuck? You know, he's just staring at Space <laughs> Leia and it was completely the opposite of what my reaction was, which was, holy shit, Leia's really powerful now, which yeah. is a weird way of looking at both those. Yeah, you're that way scene. down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> but at, at the same time, to me, that was really awesome because I'd never seen the force used that way. And I was thinking, wow, that's kind of that's kind of a, a weird way to show it. Uh, and I mean, I, like I said, I've seen the movie four times now and I'm planning on going again once or twice. So I'm figuring now that I've seen it four times. I've come to terms with The Last Jedi. And I I'll tell you right now, the fourth time I saw it was the best time. I had a really great time. And one of the reasons I had a really great time is that I didn't ruin Christmas for my youngest daughter. My youngest daughter's <laughs> Christmas list was comprised of mainly everything that is Star Wars. But being in Quebec City, it is very complicated to find anything that has to do with uh, clothing or kind of fun merchandise that 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 is related to Star Wars because no one gives a shit. And so what I did is I ordered uh, a couple of months ago from Target in the United States and had it shipped to, to, to Quebec City. And that was like, I don't know, it cost a lot of shipping. But I had like a, there was a Ray t-shirt in there. She, there were socks and she wanted to have um, a poster. Um, and, you know, all these little last Jedi things. Now, when the trailer, at this at this point, the trailer hadn't come out. And when Kylo kind of puts the hand out to Ray and he says, I was like, holy fuck, if she 
joins the dark side, I've just ruined Christmas for my daughter because I have all this Ray shit for my daughter. And that's what she asked for. I'm not, I'm not one of those just giant hogs that I'm just going to purchase anything that's Star Wars. I showed Lee the other day. I didn't get their salt and pepper shakers. I do have a toaster. That's though. right. You don't have the waffle maker that actually makes Death Star waffles. <laughs> but, oh my god, no. But the thing is, saw, is that... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but Ali really loves this stuff. Ali looks up to Ray. She likes these these things. And this is like to her as a, as a good time for herself because she can see herself evolving with the character as well. Kind of like the generation of people that were growing up with Harry Potter. They could actually kind of move up you know in age and, and kind of feel a connection there depending on the decisions that that character took and i mean so ray is a nice evolution i mean ali saw force awakens back when she was eight years old and there's an evolution now with ray uh being a little bit the way she is now i don't know what jj abrams where he's going to set it in the timeline i'm pretty sure he's going to fast forward a couple of years uh, to see that maybe the resistance uh or the Re- rebellion now is going to have a little bit more uh, weight to it i don't think he's going to pick up exactly where the last jedi ended maybe anyway, long maybe story ray short, will wake up and this was all just a dream and now we continue from the moment on the <laughs> island yeah, Luke Skywalker takes the lightsaber and says, "Thank you. I was looking for this. Let's go fight. Let's go fight Darth Vader and Kylo Ren." The it end. Was fu- it was funny. When I got home from the f- the initial viewing of the film, I-, I my girlfriend was like, "So how was it?" And I was like, "I had a really good time. It is a fucked up Star Wars movie. It's got a lot of issues, but it's a really good continuation of where the Force Awakens was." And I says, "I can't tell you, but." Christmas is saved. And she was like, okay, so Ray doesn't go to the dark side. So I kind of spoiled it a little <laughs> to my girlfriend. But at the same time, I was like, at least everything's okay. <laughs> so yeah. I think, I think the thing you have to remember, Jason, you already touched on this point is that this movie is just a very small connective tissue. It takes place over a couple of days. Once the main plot starts yeah, off, they no have 18 yeah, hours cool. to, before they run out of fuel. So from the time that the first bombing run goes down and the next day it starts the 18 hour clock, this is a very small contained story and so if you don't like it yeah. you've got episode nine that i think is probably gonna be a much more epic scope they're gonna probably tell more story with it and so it's just a blip on the radar whether you liked it or not and if you liked it great but if you didn't episode nine i would just say that to... that baits in expectations so we're starting the well, cycle I... again best not even True. tempted even well thinking about you... oh i had problems with the last jedi but the next one will fix them Bad no, that's the down. thing. This is what's really <laughs> cool about why The Last Jedi is a solid installment in the Star Wars franchise. Where the fuck do they go? Yeah. You know, that's it's, the that fun is. thing. It's, it's where, harder like, to at the follow Force up Awakens. imagining. Exactly. Where the fuck do they go from here? Yeah. You know, the big bad is no longer there. It's Kylo Ren, so we're going to get to see evolution there. Fine. Let's see what happens. What if Kylo Ren gets murdered in the first five minutes? Where do we go? I have no <laughs> idea. You know what I mean? But that's that's a fun thing about The Last Jedi is I walked out of it. And I think that's why a lot of the pressure came off of me is where I was like, this this is, has gotten me to a point where I'm like, I don't have to worry about it. And I love that. I love that because yeah. Ryan Johnson was like, just go to bed, man. You don't need to panic. You don't need to see where the fuck this is going. Just go to bed and everything should be fine. And I love the fact that I get to the end of this one and be like, I have no idea what's coming next. Yeah, it's I have no goddamn yeah, exactly. clue where this is it's going. It's a clean slate. That's the thing. And I think that with the setups, quote unquote, that J.J. Abrams did, he set up a lot of things. He teed them up for Ryan Johnson. Okay. And, jo- and Johnson just threw them over his shoulder and said, forget it. I'm not answering these things. With this movie, you're not you're not setting up things. He's not teeing it up. They're gone. And now we don't know what to expect. And that's what's great that it, that it did kind of reboot 
reboot things. What I mean, though, is that this movie doesn't leave you with those kind of questions to where you have to go and theorize and fan theories. Like, there are no mysteries to pay off or not pay off in the next film. We get a fresh start with wherever J.J. Abrams is going to take this story. Speaking of uh, speaking of The Force Awakens, we've got some housekeeping to do. Uh, Housekeeping with uh, Jason and Lee and Kevin. That's me stealing from Nerd on Nerd, our our friends Liam and Ellie. So, um, absolutely check them out. That's a shout out to them. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to follow up some things from our previous episode, uh, just to, just for anybody who gives a shit about that stuff, uh, because we're moving on. We're not really going to be talking about it. For example, the the main thing I talked about in the last episode is individuation. Uh, I talked a lot about Carl Jung and uh, and the three areas of pressure that affect individuation: this mental process, the the unconscious, and the, the defeating of arrested development as a as a battle in each and everyone's individual mind. That's uh, I'm done with that. I'm not really interested in following that one up for the Last Jedi, and I would say mostly it's because we've been dealt a weird hand, and that the writing shifts so many gears that it's not really the same story, you know? It's not really worth following up. I think that story did its job. It was pretty much complete. But I will say, if you are interested in reading up on that, you want to take it further, I wasn't interested in it, but you might be. I mean, there's there's some things to be had. You could argue that each theme is still integral to that story. And if, uh, say, you wanted to take it a new step, we could see this film as a study of post-individuation or shared maturation. Uh, and at this point in which the individuation of others are paired and contrasted into new outlooks and challenges. So right. in reality, this is closer to something like string theory, which we've talked about on Magnolia. It's come up a couple of times. Jason's brought it in a few times. The only podcast that's going to be talking about Star Wars and brings up Magnolia. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's probably closer to string theory in that it's now we're seeing developed threads clashing off one another and a multiple amount of reactive points all centered around an omega point, but acting on a connected though distorted base, you know? So that's, so for example, we see the individual pressures that Rey used to carry with her matched with the familial that uh, Ben Solo carries with him in a conflict between those two characters. Each resolve, you could argue, is related to where those two have landed post-individuation. So questions like, who are Rey's parents? Can Ben find resolve after the death of his father? Can Rey forgive Ben for the murder of her father figure? Can Rey's experience as an individual and her own pressures in terms of to her imagined place in the universe be resolved in her saving of Ben, etc., etc. These kind of questions, the answers that you might get from them, they're mostly related to the same pressures I was talking about in the last episode and how they're conflicting off one another when they've been matched up. So that's where your string theory comes in. Uh, and the conflicts each recur and rebound based on what each character tackled with regards to their individuation. So in regards to the new characters, beyond the three that I mentioned, there's a bunch of characters introduced in this story who were absent in Force Awakens or didn't have a real individuation. So we've got characters like Holdo, Rose, you could argue Luke, you could argue Poe finally gets a story that's really more integral to actually his character. And we can imagine what their original conflicts were and impress upon them standing points to rebound off the other characters they are paired with. There's a lot of pairs in this film. So you've got a bunch of yeah, string man. theory. That's where it really, that's where that really comes in. So was Luke's individuation dealing with a familial pressure in relation to Darth Vader? Or is it, was it maybe something more like the individual with Ray? That's a question you can ask yourself about this. Uh, you could say perhaps it was our conflict with understanding itself with human purpose these these could be new elements of individuation that i hadn't tackled before uh that you might want to explore 
Uh, how does that bounce off the characters he's paired with, like Ray and Ben? You know, you could does and, and did Rose, for example, already have her individuation before the film? Uh, or uh, was it was it like societal because she was like a, a slave? You, you know, there's like work like that you can think about in the background of their story. Have we already? past a lot of the arrest her relationship with her sister yeah exactly she dies and then she, coming to terms with that that's a familial pressure you can work that out and see how that clashes off say finn who we know is societal how those two are paired together their story relates a lot to the overall world of star wars is it by their combined nature and the pressures that they faced in that terms that allows us more insight to the world of Star Wars than any pair of characters combined. Is that why? Is 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 that where that arrest of development has been beat, you know? And I think that you're pointing into something that's really, really interesting because Finn's arc is actually the most complex to me in The Last yeah, Jedi absolutely. with regards to it because he's not, you're, you're talking about pairs. He's paired with Rose, but he's set up Rose who is going to be a, an emblematic of what the Resistance stands for. And then you'll have uh, Phasma, who is uh, representative of what the First Order is, but then it goes to fruition what I was talking about in the Force Awakens episode where actually Finn is going to be paired with DJ. DJ who has yeah, no absolutely. necessarily affiliation. And so you'll have both DJ and Finn in the middle of what the Resistance and the uh, First Order are going through. And so Finn's individuation actually happens. He has to face the mirror image of a guy who has no real affiliation and whether or not he wants to go down that route, which is really yeah, cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he gets to kind of become a guiding force in societal pressure. So that's why everything he's kind of facing in this story in himself is very related to the the overall world the corruption of the war itself that's where dj comes in the the multiple sides of the line outside the spectrum the political spectrum that we've been set up i mean there's there, he he has been granted a agency unlike any other character and his ability to walk all across the lines with the other characters and still be a, a moral guiding voice is something that shows how strong his individuation was at the start of Force Awakens and and could uh, show that he's grown, like we said at the end of Force Awakens, where the three came to a head of how their individuation was and how they'd grown through it. His being broken at the end of Force Awakens and waking up in this could be another dream, could be another version of his breaking of the arrested development and the unconscious. So, I mean, absolutely, you can work, you can build on that entirely. So it's interestingly enough, in the original script, uh, Finn was supposed to go to Canto Blight with uh, Poe. And John and Johnson said that it was Seriously, just a couple right. of dudes walking around and it just didn't work. And so think of how different the movie would have been if it was just those two, you know, goofing around. That also might be why it doesn't work in itself, because uh, Poe's... Uh, pressure is difficult to nail down. It is societal, but it deals with a different form of societal pressure. And that's not necessary to say that that's where his comes from. His might be the individual pressure. His ability to lead reflects mostly on him rather than a society. And that's where his arc is based. So this all comes from something that's not really in the story of The Last Jedi. It's before the story of The Last Jedi and sort of contextualized within the story. So it's it's interesting to imagine what exactly these these elements are and how they would react with one another. But you're entirely right. That's that's how string theory works. Uh, Roger Ebert said that about that Altman film Jason made me watch. Shortcuts, man. Shortcuts. Yeah, it's shortcuts. Uh, it's a film I watched and talked a little. We talked a little bit about in our Magnolia, Magnolia review yeah. because it relates to string theory. Uh, Roger Ebert has a great uh, line on that and that he says that he, he imagines all these how these characters would react and solve each other's problems if they had just been placed slightly differently with each other the pair-ups 
that could have eased each other. This is shortcuts. And uh, that's a, very similar to Magnolia. You wonder that people have the solution to each other's problems, but we don't. they're all held against each other in other connections. And they all center around a different Omega point. Uh, in, in shortcuts, it's the earthquake. Uh, and it's also uh, it's sort of like the town is kind of the, the main Omega point. Uh, whereas in Magnolia, it's it's the, the father figure uh, of t- Tom Cruise's character. I can't remember his name. <laughs> TJ Mackey, I know his, his name. I just can't remember what his father's called but uh yeah it's very similar kind of concept you it's fun to imagine all these threads bouncing off each other and what they mean and what how they change the outcome of each connection by their meeting and i think that ties in really well to individuation and how that defines where a character's individuality comes from from the unconscious and how that defines their particular thread mm. before it even connects to another one. So I think that's all pretty exciting. I, it's not something I totally did a lot of research on. It's just something I wanted to pose right. as a follow-up to give some sort of perspective and not say, ah, oh, fuck it, I'm done with that, moving on. <laughs> but speaking of, ah, oh, fuck it, moving on, <laughs> our move from binary to spectrum we, was also something we were talking about in yeah. terms of conflict and political nature of the story and that The Force Awakens was a change from the binary binary conflicts of the original Star Wars series was very much an allegory for World War II, a far more easily perceived good versus evil kind of conflict versus what is now a far more complex gradient of, of different political opinions. Not every There's no hard good or hard bad. There's a lot of just sort of in-betweens and back... And that's not technically true, and I'll get to that, but uh, there there is one hard bad, and I'll, and I'll say that, but the... Um, for the most part, we are set up with a spectrum in Force Awakens that allows us to think that Rey might be a step down from the Jedi. She might be a new alteration, which uh, is far more lenient, far more politically savvy, far more able to cross different barriers. And we were totally right. This is the film that deals with that. <laughs> yep. The uh, the Last Jedi absolutely is is about characters crossing binary lines, and and it's a film where we kind of see fluxing spectrum of stances that one has to be able to adapt to be in order to help others. Ray does so, ignoring Luke and meeting with the enemy because she knows there's more in common there than not. Whereas Luke becomes something of a more polar you can't do this kind of character mm-hmm. far more st- stuck in a stance so that's the difference between binary and spectrum she's able to approach a political issue she knows she's against but wants to improve that kind of thing uh, Kylo Ren rejects the structured evil view of Snoke for his own attitude which falls somewhere on the Magneto scale a progressive but violent next to Ray's agreeably progressive but passive so, nice. uh, so I, I mean, like that. We're, we're moving, we're, yeah, we're moving into the X Men kind of complex, and that because that yeah. was based on like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Uh, that that conflict there is it was always a far. It was a spectrum. It was Star not Wars a binary. They were actually on up. the same side. Yeah. So yeah, Star Wars <laughs> is moving into the at least approaching X Men. I mean, nobody thinks X Men are the deepest films in the fucking world, but at least it's getting there, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, they've made good on that flux. I, I'm very happy with. Of it. I think that they set it up really well. Uh, I think the best part of it all, though, is that while there is plenty of places for individuals to fall on the scale, the film still makes a point that we have no fucking place for fascism. And that's that's brilliant to me. I love it. Hux in this film is a joke. Uh, he's, a, he's a punchline. He's played like a joke because he is a joke. His stance is not an ideological difference. It's not a rationale, well-recent place to be in the universe. It is simply a collection of the worst traits of mankind <laughs> amalgamated into one person. Yeah. He's, he's, that's how we have to treat fascism in real life, ultimately. Absolutely. I, uh, at least I believe that. 
And I mean, sure, it's, it, fascism is scary. It's scary to think people agree with it in any form. But these people are not to be negotiated with, you know? And so they identify with Nazis. And that's now more than ever inexcusable. And, well, it was always inexcusable. What the fuck am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> There was a time. It also reminds, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it also reminds me of a Dan Harmon intro he made once to on his show Harmontown. He was condemning how in 2017 Trump missed the call. It was only a couple of months ago to simply condemn Nazis. And that was over the, the Charlottesville, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the riots at Charlottesville. Uh, all he had to do was basically stand against the quote-unquote alternative right. You know, the the, the, the white supremacist marching of the... Uh, yeah, the e- as as Harmon says, the easiest decision you ever... Low-hanging, non-Nazi foots is all he was getting from that. <laughs> and he still <laughs> fucked it up. It's, it, it was brilliant. The rat's amazing. I absolutely recommend people check it out. Yeah, anyway, one of the things he says in this round, to summarize it, is we kind of need to make a stand against this sort of shit. Seems mad that it needs to be said, but he does note you don't want to talk to people who entertain the notion of being a Nazi anymore. And you don't want to talk to people who circumscribe the concept of Nazism within a fucking Socratic dialogue. And I mean, I think that's fucking brilliant. And it was weird because it's a rant that doesn't need to be said. You know, the Nazis are bad. It's not something we need to really put out there. But somehow we see on Twitter every day that more people are not just looking for the old days, but are pining for some form of fascism, you know? And that's it's insane scary, that that's where man. we are. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. It's terrifying. And so it would be easy for Star Wars to say, hey, fuck Nazis like the old day, right? But this film actually does something that's far more interesting. It sets up a spectrum of gray and non-so-gray good and bad. Like this whole range of where you can fall politically and all of these characters and their conflicts. And then it sets up fascism to the left of the scale. Exactly. <laughs> it's a joke. It's, it's, it is literally a punchline. It's not on the fucking scale. We can't entertain it as a part of the scale. It is literally just bad shit. I mean, it could be argued that maybe it doesn't go far enough. Um, by know. having Ben, by having Ben use Hux and his forces, it does like put in the idea that they are basically disposable, not political entities. They're basically just jokes that you can manipulate in your own way. It's a little more complicated than that. I I would say and, and uh, Ben using Hux and his forces kind of does undermine Ben's position rather than enforce it I mean he is up in arms with Nazis and I think that criticism would be fair I think people could make a conversation of that in itself but I think the acknowledgement that things are a little trickier now to gauge politically and that in all that fascism is still a joke is a pretty smart and clear message to give the viewers of this film. It actually had me thinking about it, and it's weird. I only thought about this today, just before the recording. The idea that it opens, the space battles, and the, the, the distance the ship can get from the other ships, to me, that felt like pirates. <laughs> you know? Like pirate battles, sea battles in space. You know? And it was it was weird, because it had me thinking about, like, the Golden Age piracy, which happened, like, alongside other wars. You know, it was all this sort of... It was just the sort of background to how people were actually living... You know, uh, the, the War of Spanish Succession, for one, 1701 to 1714, overlapped on some of the later periods of the Golden Age of Piracy. And, and then we've got ideas like characters like DJ and Maz Kanata, who are pirates. You know, they are at least, you know, bounty hunters or something. You know, they're somewhere in a spectrum. Yeah. It's interesting to think that it's it's less a move away from, like, the war films, like the classic World War II send-ups and, like, 
Japanese cinema of of the original Star Wars films, and it moved to something a little more like the buccaneer adventure films of of, of pirate films and pulp novels, uh, because it's it's funny like that because those there is a far greater spectrum than good and bad in those stories. And if you wanted to make a fun, good or bad story, maybe Pirates is the way to go. So yeah, I don't know. I thought sense. it was That's kind cool. of a cool parallel. It's maybe not one totally one-to-one with a historical battle like World War II. I, to be fair, Star Wars wasn't either. It was. It, it does kind of summar- over-summarize what happened in World War II. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's, 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 I thought it was a kind of like fun parallel, that, you know. We're not watching pirate films in space. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it works, man, because, I mean, if you look at it, most of the time you'll have these things in pirate movies or even pirate books. You're going to have characters that are going to actually, like, uh, turncoats. You will you know, the, you can yeah, trust absolutely. them and stuff like that. And look, I mean, just look at the, the sequence where uh, with Kylo Ren and and, um, and Ray. You'll have one guy, you know, he's he's turning against his, his mentor, and after that he turns against Ray. And so you're like, he's basically playing that double agent thing again all over. Uh, DJ yeah, is a double agent. As well, and so you'll have that fucking Poe mutinies. You know, he's ah, a mutineer. There exactly. That's a you good know, point. I haven't even ship, noticed that. You know, there's another one. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I, it was funny because it's not something I had seen or yeah, I'd heard of call, or even man. thought about until today. I was literally looking at how the ship was just out of blasting range yeah. and thinking. If that was on water, this would be a pirate film, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point, man. I hadn't even noticed that. That's a really great pull. So, uh, yeah, that's us. That's housekeeping. I mean, unless you have something, Jason, to follow up your, your thinkings. Not really, to be honest. I was, uh, the only thing that I was really happy come to fruition is to see Finn, uh, be with, uh, DJ. And I was like, okay, look at that. You know, it's, it was, a, it wasn't an expectation. It was just one of those things where I was like, hey, this will probably happen because DJ will end up being one of those guys that plays both sides. And yeah, I, that's I ended up being right. right. And I was kind of happy about that. Other than that, I mean, I, I think I did say it on The Force Awakens that I was just excited to see where this was going to go. And I mean, even from the trailer, when Luke says, this isn't going to go the way you think, you're like, well, okay, then I, then I should stop thinking yeah, about yeah, it yeah, a little that, bit. That's that solved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I really, I really appreciate that take. I want, but I don't have my daughters with me today and I wanted to get the impression of, of a, of a, a kid's impression of what the last Jedi meant to them. And seeing as that Kevin is right here and his son is, is sick home from school. I wanted to check in what to see what, what Ryan thinks about it. It's great, yeah. And so, I, what I wanted to know is, I wanted to know ask ask Ryan how he what what he liked about the Last Jedi. I liked it a lot. <laughs> what was your favorite part? What was your favorite part? Why did you like it? Oh, it was really interesting because there were like because um how like Luke Skywalker how she was te- um how he was teaching Rey how to be a Jedi. She was like, yeah, what like. Cause she um, told him he was a, um, that she was a Jedi, but he didn't really believe her. It was weird because she he was like, "What makes you a Jedi?" <laughs> <laughs> Good call. Yeah, definitely. All right, and then uh, did you did you like the uh, the relationship between Kylo Ren and Rey? Did you think that that was kind of cool what they were yeah, doing with that? That was cool. Tell him what about that? What about okay. that scene? The remember the red the red uh, throne room. Oh, <laughs> well, it was crazy because, well, it was crazy because when um, Kylo Ren moved a lightsaber over to him and then he turned it on and then his whole torso came off and it fell on the floor. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was creepy. What about when Ray threw him the lightsaber? Remember that? Yeah. Oh, and then he caught it behind him and then it went right into his head. <laughs> Yeah, that was great. I love that too. Good call. All right, and who's your favorite character, uh, Ryan? Um, I 
liked um I like Kylo Ren. Oh, cool. Dad's gonna have to be like careful now. You like the bad guy. Like the bad guy. Is he a bad guy though? Do you think he's a bad guy? Uh, he was, and I feel like he was in Force Awakens. Okay. Okay. And now? Uh, he's been better. He's been better. <laughs> You're, ho- you're hoping that he's... He's been, he's been killing his dad a lot less. <laughs> you're hoping that he basically is going to end up turning to the, you know, the light, is what yeah. you're saying. You think there's yeah. still hope for Kylo Ren? Uh-huh, because he was nice. Okay, good. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good nice. point. Yeah. He was nice in this movie. He's, a- he's absolutely right. Hey, did you know who Yoda was going into this? Yeah? Um, He was the spirit. Okay, cool. And did you like yeah, what Yoda had to say to Luke? Yeah, it is. Well, it's interesting, like how um, Yoda, like they can, the Jedi's can all still see him because he's a spirit. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Do you think? Do you think Luke is going to be a, a spirit just like Yoda Probably, now? Probably, because a lot of people believe in Luke Skywalker. Very oh, good. Yeah, I like that. Absolutely. That's exactly yeah. so cool. He's like he's like Broom Kid. <laughs> he is. He's the Broom Kid of pod- podcasting. He's the future. Exactly. So cool. All right, man. So uh, thanks, Ryan. I think it's really cool. And so if yeah, you were, thanks, Ryan. would you recommend that uh, people see The Last Jedi? Yeah. Yeah? How many times? Three. <laughs> good call, man. It's good. Good round number. All right. <laughs> hey, thanks so much. We're going we're gonna to leave you alone now so you can go play your video games and whatnot. And let these grown weirdos talk about Star <laughs> <Okay>. Wars. <somewhere. laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks to Ryan for, again, you know, that I love that. I love, like I said, I love bringing kids on because these films are made for them. And like I said, like Yoda specifically says, truly wonderful the mind of a child is. Which is completely the opposite mm. of how I see this fucking movie. Truly really fucking warped. Exactly, the mind it's of an completely adult warped. The completely <laughs> warped the mind of an adult is, and so um, I, I kind of went in uh, because um, I had listened to a couple of places and they were throwing the term deconstruction around quite a bit. And I'm not going to say that they're using it. Well, they're kind of using it wrong. Uh, I, and I wanted to kind of delve into. <laughs> 
why it's being used wrong. When people say de deconstruction, they're actually talking about subversion. I'll give an example of what I, I had heard. I don't remember. I didn't take down the place. Someone said somewhere that by having Snoke die in the second film as opposed to the third film, that was a deconstruction of the Star Wars mythos. And I was like, that's not deconstruction. That's actually subversion. You're subverting audience mm -hmm. expectation. And if you look at it very carefully, if he hadn't done that in the second movie, then people would be shitting on him because they kept him alive for the third movie and it would just be a rehash of the Emperor. And so that yeah, to yeah, me is definitely. an example of subversion and not deconstruction. So I am just want to get into why The Last Jedi is really a deconstruction of Star Wars. I'm going to give you guys a lot of quotes. I have research that I did and all that. And I'm going to apply a little bit to what it happens to be going through in The Last Jedi. Deconstruction at the basis, okay, we were talking about World War II a little bit earlier, Lee, is actually, it actually stems from that. And what it deals with is the interpretation of language. Okay, usually how words have lost meaning throughout time. Kind of, kind of like uh, what we were talking about with inherent fights, uh, you know, and that the language that they use is basically a jarbled mess because it all has so many meanings at this point that everything becomes a blur of sensation. Exactly. Uh, a general misunderstanding each and every time you listen to something back and forth. So yeah, we're, we're rehashing old themes. We're back to postmodern crap. Exactly. That's <laughs> what we're doing. Okay. That, that lightsaber breaking is that loss of meaning that we're actually going for so that we can reinterpret right. the force for modern time. Okay. Perfect. And so uh, there's a quote that I really like with regards to deconstruction that comes from uh, scholar uh, GC Spivak, who says that the very act of reading creates a new and different text. That is to say, reading writes, which is kind of cool because what she means is that there are an infinite amount of interpretations for any given text because of how individuals interpret signs. And for the sake of this, basically, it's going to be the script uh, in The Last Jedi and also the images in The Last Jedi. Now, Absolutely. deconstruction comes from Jacques Derrida and Derrida stated, and I'll quote this, that deconstruction is not a system uh, then, but an ensemble of rules for reading, uh, interpretation, and writing. Now, uh, K2SO would say that I find that answer vague and unconvincing. And so I, <laughs> <laughs> what I did is I went, I went back to see Spivak, uh, to, and she actually mm. delineates three strategies that help understand what the deconstructive process is. And so I took these strategies uh, from Gary Rolfe's uh, deconstruction in a nutshell. So if you guys want to go download that, it's two pages. It gives you a really, really interesting uh, breakdown of what deconstruction is. Now, the three strategies, cool. I'm going to name those three strategies and I'm going to give examples of how they actually apply to the film. The first one uh, is, uh, and this is what Spivak says, she says, to locate the promising marginal text, that is to write of in and at the margins, seizing on precisely those unregarded details, casual metaphors, footnotes, incidental turns of argument, which are always and necessarily passed over by interpreters of a more ortho orthodox persuasion. Now, she took that from a guy called Norris. I don't know who he is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's probably Chuck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, to see that in action in The Last Jedi... We only have to look at how Luke has interpreted the ancient Jedi texts. Now, right, some interpret, yeah. I'm pretty sure that some have interpreted that Yoda is, is, you know, he jabs at Luke and he says, read them, have you? Page turners, they were not. And I think that a lot of people, because of the backward talks, they're assuming that Luke didn't read them. But if you look at how Yoda oh, usually he talks, he's them, saying, yeah. you've read them. 
He's not read them, have you? He's not asking him a question. He's saying, you've read them. They're not page turners. Mm -hmm. And so Luke's understanding of the Jedi Order can only come from his interpretation of those texts. And he hasn't been around the Jedi Order nor Obi-Wan or Yoda for a very long time. So his knowledge can only come from those books. So mm -hmm. in a way, what this points to on a metatextual level is that Ryan Johnson is also interpreting the entirety of the Star Wars universe and looking into what text there is in the margin and seizing on those unregarded details. And he's doing it through the legend of Luke Skywalker and that character's relationship with the Force. So the entire right, movie cool. itself is based on how Luke views the Force, but also how Ryan Johnson views Star Wars. You know, yeah, basically, it's basically that you have those two levels. So that would be to locate the promising marginal text. He's basically saying, okay, no one knows what's inside those ancient Jedi texts except for Luke. Hmm. And I'm writing this story. So I can tell Luke what the fuck to think, which is kind of fun. It gives him an open book to actually work on. Now, the second strategy in, in uh, the process of deconstruction is to disclose the undecidable moment, to pry it loose with the positive lever of the signifier, that is to expose the practice of double coding, or what Spivak calls double-edged words, in order to demonstrate the antithesis always already present in every thesis. Mm. Okay. Now, in our case, we're not only looking at double-edged words, we're going to be looking at double-edged images in The Last Jedi. Yeah, absolutely. Now, take, for example, Yoda's really awesome sentence, young Rey possesses already that which she needs after he blows up the sacred Jedi tree on Atu. To Luke and to the audience at that point, Yoda is saying that Rey doesn't need the Jedi text because she's already has her experience. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? Mm-hmm. But so, it's literal. She has them. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's the funny thing is that, therefore, if you look at it, I mean, Luke and to us, the physical nature of the books are, are absent, meaning she has nothing <laughs> except herself. However, when they're on the Falcon at the end of the movie and Finn reaches in to get that blanket from Rose, we see that the books are there. And that was the fun thing is that we realized that those books are actually safe. So Yoda's sentence is a wonderful example of how the thesis and antithesis are both present in... In language in itself. In that, yeah. in that, in that language because it has a double meaning. So to Luke... Ray has nothing. To Yoda, she has something. So in that one moment, you have the thesis and antithesis. That's perfect. That's a great now, example. And I mean, we're going to look at it in terms of uh, images as well. I mean, the example of double-edged images would be what I explained on In Session is that the opening of the film, uh, you know, Poe Dameron one-on-one -on -one with the Dreadnought is an epilogue that sets up Ryan Johnson's intention with The Last Jedi. You know, if you, what he basically is doing is getting in really close to dismantle every little weapon that's at short range. So Poe's Pulling a fast one is equivalent to Ryan saying, well, let me take a crack at Star Wars and see what I can dig up. Mm. You know, the back and forth with, with Hux is a clever taunt on how he intends to handle the quote unquote fanatics of the franchise that, like, you know, they proclaim to be this be all <laughs> end all, you know, guardians of Star Wars. And at the same time, what, what Poe's doing is he's actually ignoring Hux. He's basically saying, eh, you know, whatever, whatever you guys think, it's really not a big deal. So I think that what Ryan is actually saying in that epilogue is basically, I'm here now and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> I'm actually going to make the movie I want. You can even toy with the idea that from a certain point of view, the film acts as a mirror to society where the first order are the rabid and I'll say the most annoying fucking fans of Star Wars and the ones, you know, the ones that can never really be pleased versus the band of resistance fighters like me. 
The ones that want to see Star Wars live to fight another day. No, no, okay, didn't so you put yourself on a fucking bit. pedestal there at all, did you? <laughs> oh, yeah, not at all. <laughs> but that's it. I think that when you look at and you break down those images, the idea that, you know, Ryan Johnson is actually communicating two things at once. Obviously, that shows who Poe is. He's a brash flyboy that they call him and all mm. that. But underneath all that, that's Ryan Johnson sitting in that cockpit saying, you know what? Let me take a crack at this and I'll show so you think what's going that, on. Do you think the script also had Holdo saying you're dangerous in a very saucy kind of way? I think and, so. Uh, I that's, think so. that's also like... Oh that's, God, that's Lord him, he's never been told he's <laughs> Save dangerous Star Wars before by for any me. woman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which brings me to the third point, which is to uh, reverse the resident hierarchy only to displace it. That is to expose and challenge binary opposites in the text to expose the unacknowledged and perhaps unconscious taken for granted power hierarchies within the text to reverse them and finally pull them apart. And that's another quote, and it says, but of course, deconstruction is not only this. Deconstruction is not what you think. That's what she ends mm. on. And here uh, we have Luke Skywalker's exact words. This isn't going to go the way you think. If you look mm. at the promotional material leading up to The Last Jedi, that sentence. So I said, it was a warning. It was a warning. <laughs> you know, but that's it. It's a metatextual level at the, at the same time. You know, it's going to be in the movie, and it's actually going to be, you know, uh, he's warning Ray about the temptation of the dark side, but... In and another context, he's actually warning the audience: don't get your expectations up too high. We're going in a very, very different direction. So, it's a fair point. So, it it it, it approaches. It, it basically puts aside what can't in themselves can't be decided without knowledge. Is that what you mean? I'm basically saying that Luke himself, being on Act Two, okay, mm. he's actually pulled apart everything that's been taken for granted between these two power hierarchies that are the Jedi and the Sith. And with his speech to Rey about feeling the force that it's all around her and that it doesn't belong to the light side or the dark side, that there is a balance. That is the challenge. That's the challenge. The binary opposites in the Star Wars text itself. The thing that Ryan Johnson okay. is trying to do at the heart of The Last Jedi is basically say, hey, we're supposed to be questioning these things. Okay? What if there is already right. balance there? You know, and that basically what creates this this disbalance is the fact that you have these two binary opposites that are kind of fucking with you. Question for you. So since we're talking about yep. balance and, and the way that you interpret that and what's said in the film, do you think at all that because Snoke being so powerful with the Force dying meant that to balance it out, Luke had to die? You could actually interpret it that way, definitely. Just a question. I mean, because you have two very powerful Force users, I mean, regardless of how Snoke was taken out, we can see how easy it is for him to use the force and how powerful he is. Uh, he is the one that, you know, we the whole time we are wondering how are Ray and Kylo Ren communicating uh, that would use a tremendous amount of, of power and ability. And we find out that really it was just Snoke toying with them easily, too. And so mm -hmm. we know that Luke is very powerful with the force. Uh, is that a balancing act of sorts happening? Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense to a degree because we're what I assume the deconstruction idea will be setting up the idea that uh, this also plays into Kylo Ren's interpretation of the old and the new, and that it got, has to be cut off and potentially killed if you have to. Uh, the idea that we are seeing some balance within these things is and isn't an acknowledgement that maybe there's already and maybe there's already not a balance. That's that undecidability that we're kind of getting into. And I mean, at the same time, if you look at it. 
Luke, uh, it's said throughout the movie that he's not necessarily, uh, he's shut himself off from the force, right? So there is a way to see that maybe Snoke isn't all that powerful. You know what I mean? That actually bridging that gap between those two individuals is actually weakening him. And that's why Kylo Ren can actually get the best of him at that point. So, I mean, but that's pure speculation on my part. You know what I mean? Now, the one thing that I wanted to bring up is that fuel has never really been an issue in Star Wars. You know, it's kind of like the never ending bag of bullets a hero has in his gun at the end of an action yeah, film. Usually, usually you know? it's something to, like the, the, the Millennium Falcon, the, the fucking, the thing that helps them jump into hyperspace is malfunctioning, but it's not that they don't have the petrol to get there. Exactly. So, I mean, why did Johnson make fuel a factor? Because pirate, pirate battles. Yeah, it's, it, it, pirate yeah, that's battle. why. There we go. <laughs> But I mean, to me, what it is, is that Johnson is, again, using that double-edged image. On the surface, the ships running out of fuel represent the critical state of the resistance. That's fine. And I mean, some people, I think, that I pointed out that it was a ripoff from Battlestar Galactica. And I'm like, all right, good for you. You found the fucking reference. What does it mean? Why is it there? And so the intention for me in this case is that Johnson is saying that Star Wars as a franchise is actually running out of fuel <laughs> and that things need to change in order for it to continue moving forward. Okay. That line, let the past die means exactly what it means. Mm. All right. And at the same time, that's one of those lines that is a double thing. You know, I mean, it, it's very simple. That one's kind of clever, but at the same time, you can really clearly see what it is. Yeah. Let the past die. You're like, well, okay, we saw it in the promotional material. Maybe Kylo Ren's going to be shooting Leia. And after that, when you just mentioned Luke Skywalker dies, let the past die. Snoke is probably one of these ancient figures. There's a visual dictionary out that I wanted to kind of look because apparently Snoke's ring has a lot of detail on it. Uh, it, it, when you go in the, what outer at the regions? Jedi temple, the one that uh, Yoda burns down, it's an insignia on the floor. Yeah. It's actually a crest of the uh, ancient Jedi, one of the ancient Jedi founders or leaders, and it bears a striking resemblance to Snoke. It's, so it's it's yeah. you know, speculated <laughs> that that actually could be him. Uh, we don't know for sure, but yeah, it's it's actually if you look on the floor of the temple when he's walking, you can't. It's not clear in the film, but it is there. It's a circle with this alien looking. Yeah, with the like Buddha yeah. looking all, guy. All yeah. powerful uh, force users tend to look bald and decrepit. I mean, look at Yoda. So yeah. <laughs> could be anybody. Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, when it comes to using fuel, I mean, well, even, I mean, if we're talking about not having any fuel, there's two instances in the movie that are mentioned by Poe that are about stalling. Mm. You know, one at the beginning of the film where he's charging his reactor on the X-Wing and one at the end of the film with reference to Luke Skywalker. The first reference to me is Johnson again playing with the fanatics. Okay, the fact that he's going to go in and pull a fast one. And the end one with Luke Skywalker stalling is Ryan Johnson basically saying, if we keep this guy around, we're not going to be able to move forward. That's what the let the past die mm-hmm. is, is that we have to constantly be, it's kind of a sad thing because these are characters that we love, but at the same time, Johnson is flat out saying, I can't keep Luke around because he's stopping us from moving forward. We have other characters to de- develop. And if we just keep him around, then he's just going to continue doing stuff. It doesn't hinder him from coming back the way Yoda did. And it probably, I mean, maybe, may, I'm hoping that they don't bring him back in episode nine. I, think he will be there probably as a force ghost Mm -hmm. probably but at the same like he says no one ever really dies but at the same time you're like i would love it if you just left luke alone you know the fact that that beautiful face that he has on the rock at the end it's just like i can just get the fuck out of here yeah it is it is the end of his story so i mean let it end you know and it brings me to uh crate the salt planet oh yes i really like crate 
And it's I, beautiful. I, I, it's like gorgeous. Yeah, that's very true. But why did they choose a salt planet? I really think it's great why they chose a salt planet because it reminded me of the Dead Sea, a place where they're, the concentration of salt is so high that nothing can survive there, nothing can grow. Mm. And so what does that spell out for the resistance? Look at where they are at the point in the film when they're on crate. Is This is a place where the resistance can't grow. It can't go anywhere. This is the final battle. You know, they're practically dead. And to double down on the imagery, you have Johnson have these really decrepit ships use the mono ski to lift up the dust salt and have the ski scratch the surface of the planet, making it look like it's bleeding out. That's the resistance bleeding out. And it's bleeding out really, really fast. You don't see any of that except for that, like that cannon that they bring in. You know, that's just one thing that they're dragging along, but it's something that creates blood. Mm. Whereas when you look at the resistance flying through crate, that's actually them bleeding out. They have nothing left. Even in the Star Wars comic, there was one that they just put out called The Storms of Crate. There's a character in there called Trusk uh, Baronado. Ian explains that it's a desolate planet, that any flora that can be the, uh, seen there is desperate to make a go at it, that no life can survive on a planet like that one. But in the film, we have a contrast with the Vulptex, those uh-huh. cre- crystal creatures yeah. that have adapted to their environment and found a way to survive. That, again, to me, encapsulates what Johnson is trying to do with The Last Jedi. He's finding a way for Star Wars to survive. But to survive, you need to let the past die. So that's the kind of the, the yeah, juggling the act constant, that he yeah, had to go to. recurring idea, absolutely. And that juggling act leads me into what I focused on just a little bit. And it's the concept in deconstruction called undecidability. Lee mentioned the word a little bit earlier. Mm. And it's a concept that I really, really, really love. And I wanted to just detail a little bit of why undecidability plays a big factor into uh, how the interpretation of the force is, but also how audience expectation plays into it as well. So if we look at undecidability, we're at the beginning of the movie and we talk about Luke's understanding of the force that is changed from the dogmatic approach of the Jedi. Um, and he refers to it as a, as a religion, the same way as um, in, in A New Hope, one of the generals say your sad devotion to that ancient yes, religion right. you know, hasn't helped you conjure up the Death Star plans. And so Skywalker's way of seeing the Force is actually related to undecidability, a concept that involves deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And here's a quote that I found from David Bates's Crisis Between the Wars, uh, Derrida, and the Politics of Undecidability. And I'll quote this. It says, Undecidability was a way of explaining a very specific structural condition at the heart of language. Undecidability was what preceded and therefore made possible the production of any of the determinate meanings that then had to be decided for meaning to unfold in any particular reading. Deconstruction was, of course, the practice that demonstrated over and over again the fact that these decisions could be made otherwise and that there was no way one particular meaning could be given some privileged status. Deconstruction did not do away with meaning, but instead revealed the structure of undecidability that made possible the generation of very particular, often opposing meanings. The multiplicity of meaning, then, emerged not from the infinite lexical richness, as Derrida put it, but from the formal praxis of undecidability, which operated in the apparatic intersection that marks the text's weave of intention and structure. That's the end of the quote. Yeah, so basically, we're shit at making our mind up about what things mean, so there's a constant battle that will always be there in everything we do, where there will Very be good. more that we can read into than we can just read. Well, that's it. The thing is, is that that's where actually where we're going to point it out, because the concept of undecidability is really useful in understanding the character's development and their interpretation of the light side and the dark side of the force, Definitely. but also for interpreting some of the images in the film. 
So what I wanted to do is to give you guys an example of how an audience interpretation would be uh, of uh, Luke's X-Wing in the water at the bottom of the cliff on yeah. Act 2. What did you guys think it meant? Why did Ryan Johnson add that X-Wing there? I think it was uh, red herring. It was foreshadowing of, of course, Luke's going to lift that thing up from the water, you know, just like the original trilogy and go... Or Ray, Yeah, you see, yeah. Rey definitely she's like, I did this. You would have made me do this. You do yeah. that, you know. Uh, but also, I mean... <laughs> You could say that's that's where he how he got to the fucking planet. He snuck away on an X-wing. That's what I kind of thought was the the double meaning there. But I, you know, that's you know, we're just kind of proving a point, aren't we? It's, it's, it there goes go. on and on, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. The thing is, is that in writing that text, what Ryan Johnson is doing basically is he's saying, look, there's an infinite amount of meanings that you guys can do there. Just in that X-wing itself, there is the concept of undecidability because to me, it was representative of where Luke's state of mind was, and a nod to Empire Strikes Back to show that he was back to seeing things as impossible. He can't mm-hmm. get the X-Wing out because it's too big, and he can't go back to the fight because his failure is too big. Absolutely. That's what I saw. When I saw the X-Wing at the bottom of the lake, I was like, oh, fuck. We're back to Luke being, oh, I can't do this. I didn't see it as him lifting out of the water at all. I was like, oh, shit, this is him giving up. The same way he gave up in Empire Strikes Back. He's like, you're asking for me to do the impossible. You know, and so... If we apply the rest of that, the idea of undecidability to Luke, we can see that Luke's understanding of the Force is richer, but to the point where he's lost sight of what the meaning of Jedi is to him. Mm -hmm. And a meaning, mind you, that has changed from the prequels to the original trilogy to now. I was reading a Mace Windu comic, and Mace Windu actually has a fight with another Jedi called Prost Dibs with regards to him not necessarily feeling comfortable with the Jedi having uh, military titles attributed to them. The Jedi, Prost, the way he sees it, he says that the Jedi are supposed to be pacifists. They're there in order to help, but not necessarily intervene into galactic warfare. But Mace Windu is like, you have no idea what the hell you're talking about. It is our duty to fight evil. And he's like, eh, not really. It's just, it's our duty to defend people from evil, yeah, not yeah, fight, fight it. it. Yeah. And there's a very skewed way of seeing it. And it kind of goes to prove exactly what Luke was talking about in the, the cavern when he's talking to Rey. He's like, look at this. The Jedi are just as bad. Yeah, they have yeah, no they idea. Have, they actually went out and tried to attack. a lot of accountability and blood on their fucking hands. Absolutely. There you go. So Luke sees... That for there to be balance, there has to be a both a light side and a dark side. And because of his experience, his education, okay, mm-hmm. the fact that Darth Vader was his father, he sees the dark side as something that needs to be suppressed. He gives the dark side a meaning. And that meaning is don't be like dad. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> but at the same time, if we look at the concept of undecidability, that is a very restrictive interpretation of the force. That means if he sees his father as something that's bad, then the opposite is clearly good. And that's where his mistake is, okay? The mistake that Luke makes when he confronts Ben in the hut. He sees the darkness in Ben, and he gives it a meaning instead of getting Ben to explain to him what it means to Ben. And then chopping him in half. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And if you contrast that with Ray, who understand that Ben hadn't made his choice yet, mm-hmm. but that Luke made it for him, you're like, oh shit, look at that. Now Ben's legacy, if he goes according to the old teachings of the Jedi versus the Sith, it forces him to pick a side between light and dark. If his master sees darkness in him, how is he himself supposed to see 
the light. Yeah, absolutely. And we get a glimpse of that in The Force Awakens. But his relationship to the light side is tainted by Luke. If Luke, as a representative of the light side, attacks him, then in this old binary construct, the only means Ben has in defending himself is the dark side. Totally right. So we're all the way back to Obi-Wan's from a certain point of view. The dickiest thing ever said in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why what the cave scene for Rey on Act 2 is really cool. Because when you see the many different Rays in the cave, there are many different versions of who she can become. Mm. That's that process of undecidability actually put on screen. And the important thing is they all have impeccable rhythm. It's <laughs> <laughs> so cool, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, but I mean, she doesn't find any answers by visiting the cave, you know, which Luke says is the darkness, you know, so she's able to embrace it, but doesn't have to give it any meaning. She keeps that fa- like that idea of undecidability. The darkness herself doesn't see, she doesn't see it as something that's evil. She just sees it as a place where she might find an answer, but it turns out that it simply isn't a place where she needs to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Had she seen something down there that she needed to fight the same way Luke sees himself down in the cave in Empire Strikes Back, when he chops the head off and he sees his own face, you can interpret that in so many different ways. Is it that, you know, it's his own blood? Is he his worst enemy? You know, you really have no idea. Ray sees herself and she's just like, well, this yeah, is not I what know I was me. For. Fuck this. So there's nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't need to be there. That means that Ray can reflect any Ray she wants to be. The thing is, is that she sees the same thing in Ben Solo and that's the connection they have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of cool because if you play into what undecidability really means, you're actually taking these things and going in a variety of different directions. One guy is forced to make a decision versus the other person that's not necessarily forced to do it, but made to look at it on her own terms, you know? Mm. And it's going to be the same thing with the interpretation of the Jedi text. If you look at why Ray has them, it's like when, like I studied literature, what I, I bring whatever I have with me to a book, I'm going to get something out of it that maybe someone else didn't, but it's my interpretation. And that's the whole aspect of deconstruction is that the meaning that I ascribe to it comes from my life experience. It doesn't come from someone telling me, obviously the teacher's going to say, did you notice this? And I was like, yeah, but I don't necessarily need to pay attention to it because it's not something that I like reflecting on. Exactly. But that's it. The Last Jedi is literally passing the torch in my opinion. And I mean, let the past die indeed. I mean, if I look at it, undecidability is being able to see a variety of meanings in a single word or an image. You know, and if I want to take the image of Luke Skywalker, just to close out that little point that I'm trying to make, Luke Skywalker for me is clearly not the same as who my daughter sees Luke Skywalker as. She knows him as a legend, a story that I used to tell her. You know what I mean? She's seen the original trilogy, but that's not her Star Wars and it's barely mine. I was born in 1980. So, I mean, this is the year Empire Strikes Back came out. A lot of people were already invested in, in the lore. You know, but I kind of gravitated toward as I got a little bit older. Luke Skywalker, in the case of my daughter, is literally that projection. You know, the same thing I told her about Luke Skywalker. To me, he's physically real. But to her, the way that Luke Skywalker goes out is not necessarily as important as for me. And that's why you'll have that one guy who's one image. And there's going to be undecidability around even who he is passed down through generations. It's going to be a reinterpretation of what the text of Star Wars is. And that's what at the basis we were talking about of what 
Ryan Johnson is doing with Star Wars. And there's a lot of examples of undecidability in the film. And I think a Canto Bite is a really great example of how you can fail and win at the same time. Absolutely. Actually, undecidability, although I didn't actually factor it in, does play a lot into what I wanted to go with the film in regards to, to Luke Skywalker's death in this story. And I think it's because it's so cool. open to interpretation as well. And I got a really, personally, I it's one of my favorite parts of the film. And it, it, yeah. it, to me, it's this incredible, optimistic thing. But it might not be the same. Like, for example, Kevin, what did you get? from Luke Skywalker's horrifying passing. <laughs> you know, I mean, like I said, the first time when I saw it, <clears throat> I was so disappointed just because I he was my hero and I grew up with him and I wanted to see more from him. So mm. it just, it really took a, a while to reflect on it and be okay with it because I didn't want it to be true and I didn't want him to go out like that. And I kept saying, well, if he was going to go out, then I want him to kick ass physically. I want him to have an awesome lightsaber fight. <laughs> go out swinging. To... Yeah, exactly. And so I kept coming up with this reason. But upon more reflection, I realized that him dying was – he was lighting that spark, the new spark, because he has become a legend. Yeah. And his tale can be told. And the new resistance and the new – the people that will be joining the cause are talking about him and, and his, his legendary status. And so I see it yeah, from a different exactly. point of view now. Yeah, exactly. And I think that ties also into what Jason was saying about undecidability, because it also, when you, you, there's so many ways to interpret it, you can actually, in some way, make it reflect on how he needed to die for the franchise to continue. Like Jason was saying, you know, it's kind of like, there's so much there in each action that it just, it's it's overload almost on how you react. And that's why it's very easy to understand how divisive this film is, but that's neither here nor there. What I want to talk about is, first, how this could have been an outright disaster. I mean, it's Luke Skywalker's death. That's, there's too much that could be done, and most of it not good. There's so many ways to fuck this up, and one of them, I mean, is to make it another twist. I mean, it, I guess because we're acclimatized to that, I suppose, Obi-Wan's death was a bit of a twist in the, in the first uh, Star Wars. Uh, Han Solo's death, I think the fact that we have an audible dropout in the audio, even though we discussed it as a necessary one in the story, and a one that makes sense when you're following Kylo Ren's arc in that story. It is played like a twist, and if they tried to do the same thing to Luke Skywalker, where Kylo Ren chops him in half when he rushes him, it would kill us. It would actually be terrible. Well, we we thought that he was going to strike him down, and, and he would become, you know, stronger, right? So Yeah, that's, exactly. That, that's, yeah. What we that's what I mean. We are like, oh, they're going to do that's that. That's a little bit of subversion, because that's expectation. But yeah, absolutely, that's something that would have sucked, I, I think, unabashedly. And, uh, I, I mean, even if it had been like Obi-Wan, it would have been terrible because an accepted defeat to their apprentice to inspire the next generation, that's that's that ring theory shit that's been going around. I, I don't care. These Echoes, they've done that. They've done that in The Force Awakens. They, they've done tying and reinterpreting the imagery of Star Wars. Now they need to actually tell something else. And this was a good way of telling something else. In fact, I would say maybe the best way to, uh, to interpret how Luke passes on because... What we get is, and what I think is, is beautiful about it, is how Ray describes the death. In uh, Sensing Look has passed on, she says, There was no pain or sadness, but purpose and peace. I mean, I love that. I, I think that's the most inspiring thing to ever emerge from Star Wars in, in general. Yeah. And I, I'm going to use philosophy to back it up uh, because I feel that way so strongly. <laughs> and there's not really, not really an objective reason to do so, just really a subjective reason. Instead of just being picky. Because what we're really looking at here is teleology, i.e. the final cause, the purpose to which any one thing exists without the factoring on, on how they get there or what drove them to that point. Essentially, 
bold word, purpose. The underlying nature of the being or object and its goal regardless of other factors. This is a hotbed philosophically, by the way, and I'm bound to step on someone's interpretive toes, even putting one foot into it. This is undecidability. That's what philosophy always fucking is. So we're just gonna have to roll with it. So, <laughs> I want to argue that Luke's final cause, and indeed the film's overall message, is supposed to be an answer to the philosophical debate of teleology. And God help me, I'm gonna try and argue it on the Star Wars behalf, because challenges. And speaking of challenges, Aristotle... In philosophy, it is always Aristotle. <laughs> Aristotle thought up the four causes. These are the four fundamental types of answers to the question, why? He brought most of these points up in his book Physics, particularly the second book, and that's a good thing because I've tried reading the first book and I can't make heads or tail of it. Uh, so, you know, skip a chapter and move along and you can get some good <laughs> film analysis crap from the second book. Good call. Um, so the four causes are material cause, formal cause, moving cause, and final cause. You can ask any question as to why a thing is why it is or is doing what it is, and the answer will fall into one of these categories, or more typically, fall into an overlap of the four. Uh, so, right. I'll give an example. The traditional example is a table, uh, uh, but because we're, we're playing the subversion game, I'm going to make it a pillow. <laughs> just just for fucking fun's sake. Uh, a, a pillow is soft because of the materials it is made from, so that falls under material cause. It's pretty, pretty right. you know, makes a little sense. Uh, when mm -hmm. I lie on it, I don't slide off the side of it because it is not sloped but even, and also it sinks when I sit in it, so that's the formal cause. That's the form of the matter. It is that shape because the manufacturer made it that shape from the materials, which is the moving cause. Otherwise, it's best interpreted right. as the agent, the agency within. And um, it was made this way because it was made for people to sleep on, which is the final cause. Uh, through some amalgamation of these causes, you can pretty much answer anything you want. And that's, and that's how Aristotelian thought goes. It's the final cause I'm most interested in, because what is the final cause for man? In death, I mean... In life, there's probably a lot of answers, <laughs> like for a child it is to be an adult, and for a species it is to create more of the species and reproduce, that kind of stuff. No, death is more interesting because what is the final cause of death? And this is and isn't the exact same question as what is the meaning to life? <laughs> uh, because there's also the idea of inherent purpose, say, in nature. Right. So to explain, an example would be the purpose for a seed is to become an adult plant, that sort of thing. As Aristotle wrote... It is absurd to suppose that ends are not present in nature because we do not see an agent deliberating. It's not necessarily a conscious thing, often an unconscious thing, and trust me, the discussion to what is and isn't a qualified final cause goes on forever, so let's just underline mm -hmm. it and underline the hard work of thousands of philosophical minds and speak mostly to the unconscious side of the discussion. What is the inherent, inescapable final cause to which a human's death serves. Okay. I think The Last Jedi puts forward a valuable answer to that question, and in turn opens up many more associations with that answer, there's that undecidability, in saying that the um, ultimate cause in human death is to be surpassed. As Yoda says, in relation to the role of a teacher, it and in turn can be extended to the role of any person, we are what they grow mm -hmm. beyond. Beyond, right, good line. An end exists as a marker to progress as a message to the living that finality is a state and one that we can all reach and will reach in time. But the idea that we exist as markers to our own existence invites the extension that we live for others. The important distinction, that life exists in the plural so that others see life exists, and so to the other 
we should endeavor to live always is where I got with that. So when Luke Skywalker dies and finds purpose in that death, he finds purpose because he has died for others, either as a symbol of mm -hmm. the rebellion, as a blockade for Kylo Ren, as a passer of the torch to Rey. He dies knowing this is not for himself. His destination was the horizon, something that can't be reached. And he does seem to find contentment in his death, ultimately. So really he acknowledges there's no something noble and important in dying as a means for others to outlive you. This goes back to what Rose also says when she saves Finn. We're not going to win this war by fighting what we hate, but by saving what we love. In death... Luke, and that kind of also ties into that Mace Windu example you gave with regards to um, the, the dude who said we were, well, you shouldn't be instigators in war, you should be protectors of people, not fighters for causes. Yeah. Similar idea. Twisting a question. In death, Luke acknowledges that the ultimate resolve to life is the responsibility we have to the rest of life itself. That our unconscious mm -hmm. end is for others, so in life we should make our conscious end for others as well, and thus unite ourselves with our ultimate purpose. And that's why I find it, the ending to this film so inspiring, because it understands finality and our underlying human nature, and prompts the audience to connect with that on some level and see Luke Skywalker as that inspiration. <laughs> and that's also why I can't imagine a better way to have this character leave us. He literally explains life. <laughs> it's pretty, you know, it's pretty all-encompassing. All and as the story truly sets up how he has lived selfishly and then resolves and how he lives unselfishly, it's simple but effective, and I'll fight you about it. So that's me. <laughs> that, that's great because it points to the conversation that Anakin has with Palpatine at the end of uh, in the in the middle of Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. Right. When Anakin describes the Sith as individuals that rely on their passion for their strength, they think inward and only about themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have Palpatine who says, "And the Jedi don't." And Anakin responds, "The Jedi are selfless; they only care about others." And it's really cool because if we're to take Anakin at his word, and that the Jedi are selfless and only care about others, then Luke is clearly become one with the Force because he became a yeah, real yeah, Jedi. Yeah, the ultimate At that point, he's doing it Jedi, for others. Absolutely. Uh, and that's that's something you could say has always been holding the character back, something that has always been his final cause as a conscious being, is that he's never truly connected with the Horizons because he's never truly understood what it is to sacrifice for others beyond yourself. His story was always self-motivated, his... Uh, his conflict with his father was his conflict with his father, not the universe's conflict with his father. The original stories of Star Wars are very small stories in a war, you know, and, and it focuses on a very small cast of characters. And you could say that's very much because the relation between that character and his final cause is so selfish in particular. He does save people, but as a side conflict to the fact that he saves himself by confronting his own demons through the form of his father. But this film shows that Luke finally understands what he always wanted was a greater cause, something that truly meant something. And to do that, he had to finally understand what it is to care for other people. Uh, and that's something mm -hmm. he never actually approaches in the others bar his friends who he wants to protect. He puts himself out in a way to save his friends, but that's because they mean something to him. This, this new generation doesn't mean anything to him. His death Nothing to him. is very, it, the idea of dying as a legend or a myth for something to inspire and spark the rebellion, that's something he doesn't actually care about, but it's something he would die for. So that change in how Luke perceives himself and his cause is really a, still one of Luke to the last one. There's such a yeah. perfect connection between the two that the arc is more clear now than it has ever been. And it's such a perfect way to end that story, as well as make Star Wars 
The Last Jedi, a beautiful and inspiring tale that does have the right heart and intentions, even if it muddles its adventures in a casino planet. Who cares? <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, what you're pointing out in terms of selfishness of Luke Skywalker is actually multiplied in two other characters throughout the entire film as well, in Poe Dameron and Finn. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. If you look at Poe, Poe needs to learn that he's going to win. It isn't by sacrificing others. It's by sacrificing <laughs> his will to win by any means necessary. Yes. He has to sacrifice himself. And the example that comes with the idea of legend in this case, okay, because it's the overarching theme of legend and it has to tie in with selfishness. Look at what Holdo does. Holdo is there. You know, you'll see, you were talking about people that are in strands. I actually noticed that they were actually in triangles in this film. Yes. Where you'll have Poe who has a teacher with Leia, but also has an example in Holdo. Holdo is the person that fit, that, that, uh, Poe wants to be. And when she throws the Radis at light speed through <laughs> the entire fleet, which is not only the most glorious fucking thing in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably one of the best scenes in, in, in Star Wars for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Poe actually realizes, oh shit, she saved everyone and she made an impact. She actually took them out. As opposed to what he was doing at the beginning, yelling at Paige and saying, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Get to the, you're the last. <laughs> Throw yourself left. up Sacrifice already, yourself. would you? <laughs> exactly, do that. And it's the same thing uh, that Finn needs to learn, you know, that there's yeah. more to the battle than saving himself and Rey. Finn is still trying to escape the First Order, and he's also ch- still trying to hold Rey's hand throughout the entire thing. His first question is, where's Rey? He wants to get back to Rey. What does he have in his hand? He has that beacon that's with, you know, yeah, where, where Rey is. is uh-huh. Okay, And so you have that idea of him still literally trying to hold her hand. He figures that he has to go save her so that they can both escape the First Order. Rose sees him as a legend. She calls him the Finn. And when you come to realize that she's like, oh, you're a deserter? Fuck you. Not only a deserter, you you were going to sacrifice yourself unnecessarily to the fucking save us from a door gun? Who gives a fuck? It knocks him out of the way. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I I feel like that that whole idea of selfishness comes to that point. Mm -hmm. Luke is the ultimate one you know the idea that all of these characters need to put away the selfishness they need to learn about themselves and realize that this isn't about them absolutely it's about everyone else it's about the goddamn galaxy it's about those kids at the end of the movie yeah absolutely that can look up to the sky and say oh shit there is a spark there is a rebellion that's going to be there one i wanted to bring up one last thing one of the most powerful themes for me and then i'll let kevin talk a little bit because he's been silently nodding the entire time now um i to me, one of the most powerful themes in The Last Jedi is the fact that the past informs our lives, but it doesn't dictate our future. Mm-hmm. You know, that the destiny is going to make it, you know, is what we make it. Yeah. Uh, which leads me to one of my favorite scenes in the film, and it's uh, R2-D2 and Luke on the Millennium Falcon. And I think it's kind of interesting because, again, that's what, you know, we're playing with double-edged uh, words, in this case, or double-edged images and intentions. That scene, to me, is also Johnson's biggest reveal as to what Star Wars has to become. If you look at it, Luke is really happy to see R2, and they have a little exchange, and Luke says nothing will get him to come back and fight. Mm-hmm. And then R2 shows Luke the projection of Leia, and when he sees it, it kind of fucks with him. He's just like, ah. And what he replies to R2 is one of my favorite lines in the film. And he says, that was a cheap move. Mm-hmm. To me, it's cool because in that moment, if R2-D2 could have winked, yeah, exactly. he would have. Well, he does. He has that wee, <laughs> has that wee lens that goes from red to blue. That's probably what he did. <laughs> oh, yeah? I didn't notice that. If that's there, that's fucking genius. I love that. 
But I mean, that was a cheap move is a great line because, again, Johnson is using it as yeah, double-edged words. Absolutely. In one instance, you have Luke that is reminded of why he got into the mix in the first place, Obi-Wan, Leia, the Rebellion. It all comes crashing down. He's no longer thinking about himself. He's thinking about what he has to do. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, Johnson is saying that over-reliance on the past keeps you in the same place. Yes, you can rely on the past to move forward for motivation, but you can't let it hold you back. Absolutely. And it's interesting because that applies to how he's treating Star Wars. That was a cheap move. Could be what you would quote-unquote call a fuck you JJ moment <laughs> if you want to use it. Because what he's saying is, is that playing the nostalgia card isn't always going to get you paid. Mm. You know what I mean? By showing him that, he's showing something that is nostalgic. It brings him back to when he was a kid. That was a cheap move. Do something different. Try something new. And that's what Johnson's motto is for the entire film. He says there are no cheap moves here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a really clever way of playing that scene. And that was a cheap move. Has those levels right there in just a couple of words. It's fantastic. So I love that. I I agree. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. Uh, You had mentioned a little bit earlier, Kev, before we actually started recording, that you had picked up on a bunch of film references in the movie. And I'd really, really like to hear what you got. Because I know that he, I think he screened uh, Three Outlaw Samurai. A lot of people were talking about perspective with regards to, I think it was Rashomon, the fact that we could see the story from three different perspectives with regards to Luke, which also plays into undecidability that we were talking about earlier. So I think that you you had lists. You, you mentioned Vertigo. Yeah, there's, there, I know. Okay. There's, there, well, there's so many little <laughs> references. So I'll start by saying uh, back in 2014, whenever Johnson was hired, he got together the, the crew from Lucasfilm, probably the cast as well, and he wanted them to watch right. a certain set of movies that he was going to use, uh, you know, not lifting maybe direct things, but certain themes, certain visual imagery. And so right. the six films are The Three Outlaw Samurai, like you mentioned, 1964, Letter Never Sent, 12 O'Clock High, The Bridge on the River Kwai, Gunga Din, and To Catch a Thief. And so... Is there any is there any pirate movie in there? Uh, I don't think there is. But, Damn. but those are the ones... Uh, they're not his only influences, but those are the ones that he wanted to shape uh, the casting creatives' minds going into making this film and ones that influenced him. So uh, when we talk about... Poe versus Holdo. So that inner that interaction with uh, you know the the tension between the different uh, officers. So that is the bridge on the River Kwai. That's actually Alec Guinness, someone obviously famous for starring in right. Star Wars. But uh, that is uh, William Holden's character as the hotshot American. Uh, in conflict with with Alec Guinness's character, and so he took inspiration from nice. that. Um, and then the other one is Twelve O'clock High, so that is also where he got that uh, you know superior officer subordinate uh, conflict. So those two films they cool. they wanted to use to shape that relationship. Uh, the Three Outlaw Samurai, which we mentioned earlier, um, that was kind of the weird stylistic. Uh, they they didn't want to shape it like Kurosawa, obviously is known, uh, you know, famous director that's known for his visuals when it comes to uh, samurai. And so he didn't want to do the same thing and and look at Kurosawa films, uh, similar to the way that George Lucas did in inspiring the original Mm. Star Wars. So he went to Three Outlaw Samurai just to get a little bit of a different perspective. Um, And he says that, quote, this is an era where they were trying stylistic things that were a little funky or a little more out there. And just style-wise, it got Mm. something that was going to push it out beyond what we maybe expected from a samurai film. 
And the direction of that movie is incredible, but there's also kind of an unexpected camaraderie, this uneasy alliance with these samurai. There's the whole issue of class in and of its own way, which plays out. And this is something that does pop up in Kurosawa films, but there's a flea-bitten samurai who they find in jail who is kind of grubby and waking up, uh, oh God, do I have to do this? And so obviously that's inspiration for DJ, uh, that specific character. So a couple of different things there. Also, I don't know if you know what D- where he got the name DJ from. Any ideas? Some people were reference- referencing it online as being a, a, um, an acronym for uh, yep. Don't Join. It, it, his inspiration, cool. uh, it's uh, actually from a 1978 poster of Elvis Costello where the words Don't Joy are read. And he said that he just loved that that phrase and that imagery. So, Very cool. So DJ stands for Don't yeah, it Join. Is, it, is, it is a memorable moment. Don't it's join. one of my... Like, each time uh, DJ came up on screen, my, me and my brother went like, I can't argue with like We keep turning to each other during the film. We're like, I can't argue with this guy. He just has his shit together. Yeah. <laughs> he knows exactly what he's yeah, doing. Like, Don't join. I, I love that. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, and then Letter Never Sent, he didn't take it necessarily uh, any characters or plot points or, or even visuals necessarily, but it was more of a feeling thing. So uh, Johnson quotes it as being a 4D type of experience where you feel like you're there and you're on the ground. Uh, and so he wanted that experience, I think, in a similar way to maybe the fights that Poe was a part of, and then also for uh, Rose and Finn going going on their adventure. He wanted to make you feel like you were on the ground and, and with them and part of the resistance. And so he used mm. Letter Never Sent from 1960 as an inspiration for that. Well, that's a good and call. then uh, the last cool. one, I believe, uh, of the six films here is Gunga Din, and uh, that is where uh, he's quoted as saying, that sense of fun and camaraderie, which to me gets directly back to Luke, Leia, and Han on the Death Star, and the banter between them, and the swashbuckling sense of slightly, uh, yes! slightly arch-defying adventure <laughs> among dashing friends, which I think is a big ingredient in these movies. And I know we we're watching some heavier stuff, obviously, with those other films. I thought something that presents adventure in a lighter, more fun way would be a really good thing so it's the the sense of fun and camaraderie with and so that's the you know that's the three the three amigos or throw rose in there too but secret pirate yeah that's what he was trying to say (laughs) exactly Um, so uh some other things that uh, imagery wise which are really neat that johnson threw in there uh you know talking about canto bite uh did you guys notice the the scene that he was kind of uh paying homage to that first swooping uh scene going uh, through all the patrons of the casino oh was it good no films? no so in 1927 the film wings which won the first academy award for Oscar, best picture yeah, that's right i haven't it, seen it, wings it's no. an amazing okay. shot of- I'm sure it's shit <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple of years ago i remember there was an article going around about how they did it kind of a behind the scenes but this is a silent film night from 1927 and it's amazing because this camera angle and, and i can send you guys a link i don't know if we'd want to share it later but yeah, please do. I'd yeah, like to I mean, see this that. Is, again, 1927, the technical prowess uh, of them to do this, the, the, the camera is, pushes in and it pushes in through, I believe it's a street scene where there's a lot of people dining at tables and drinking champagne and it just pushes forward yeah. and forward and forward. And they actually, I believe, used breakaway tables and they just, as the camera went forward, they pulled them apart 
So so nowadays, obviously, they can just do it with computers and camera rigs on the ceiling. But but, that's impressive. It's just one of a a number of cool shots in a film. (laughs) Exactly. And and so, but I mean, geez, you're talking about almost a hundred years ago, ninety years ago. uh, And so he wanted to pay as as a tribute to that. And it's a very similar scene, even with people pouring champagne. Uh, So watch that; it's really cool. Um, So that was that was one of the biggest takeaways. But little things like I Mm. mentioned, Vertigo. So uh, Ryan Ryan Johnson was known as one of the uh, best directors of episodes of Breaking Bad and he's mm-hmm. been a fan of using these vertigo shots. Uh, they're they're referred to as a Hitchcock shot or a vertigo shot and uh, that is when uh, Jimmy Stewart is is uh, looking over the rooftop and and you see it like zoom in towards the street. And so that's a shot that he's used when he's zooming in on Breaking Bad with Walter White. Right. Yep. And I think he did it on in Brick as well. I, I, I can't remember but I, he's used it a couple times so that was uh, and Canto Bite when they're about to go over the cliff and they yell, uh, they yell cliff and then they look over it and you can see it zoomed down. So. Ah, yeah, very good. <laughs> right, okay, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> yeah, makes very, sense. very yeah, good vision. catch. Yep, so that, um, and then uh, Rashomon, which you mentioned earlier, uh, Rashomon hmm. is a Kurosawa film. We mentioned him earlier, known, you know, considered one of the greatest directors of all time and uh, Rashomon is, is very highly acclaimed uh, but it does that storytelling it's about a man whose wife is killed and he he tells the story through flashbacks and there's actually four different flashbacks unlike the three that we get in this film but same idea obviously and they yep. and, it, and it deals with truth and and people's uh, you know telling of the truth their recollection of events and uh, you know bending the truth to to fit with the way that they see it or the way they want it to to be mm. and so he it was added very late in the game it was one of the last additions johnson made to the script and he said that he didn't want to just tell the story through through a boring old flashback and so being a fan of kurosawa he thought of that film and thought, oh, oh with regards to, to ben solo right yeah, yeah man and it's just it's it's so neat because I agree that just a basic flashback wouldn't have done it justice to just see one view of what happened. I thought it was so neat how he tells Ray about, uh, you know, oh, this is what happened. And we're all thinking like, oh, my gosh, like this uh, Kylo Ren's crazy. What's he doing? Or Ben is crazy at the time, you know, and just uh, destroying things and murdering everyone, whatnot. And then, you know, of course, you see Ben's view of events and, and it's, uh, you know, his his uncle and Jedi Master looking over him crazed, you know, and and uh, it really need to get to the bottom of it. And it was somewhere in the middle there, you know. Yeah. I really like uh, I really like how he used that. Uh, we talked about crate, and I think uh, one of the most beautiful scenes, uh, just from cinematography, using the red. I thought it was uh, mm-hmm. it had a couple different meanings to me. I took it as that was a way to show blood without showing violence. The red, uh, you know, like uh, when Luke was supposedly being shot at, you know, it was it was a way that they could show blood without actually going into a that's vulgar, that also uh, happens to be uh my favorite reference it's not technically a real reference but it's a total send-up of dragon ball z <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly kidding but i'm also like oh, at the time yeah. i turned to my brother and said oh my god dragon ball z moment uh the fucking <laughs> dude it's like fire all the lasers and all the lasers and all the things all we've got blow them up and this happens in dragon ball z fucking constantly oh yeah people then, like, like Goku, lob- Super i'm lobbing and... everything i've got at you yeah and then there's just a cloud yeah. of smoke and they're still fucking standing the same thing happens right. 
constantly throughout the fucking show, and it's just one that's of those. It's, it's it was a Dragon Ball Z moment. That's hilarious. I, didn't, I didn't think it. of <laughs> no, no, I didn't think of that one. But that's hilarious because you're so right. The, when the fact they're firing everything on like a Goku or or whoever mm-hmm. Vegeta, and then all of a sudden the smoke clears and they're just standing yeah. there. Like, oh my god, that chill. was everything yeah, I totally. had. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you were closely. You were very close. Uh, again, Akira. Uh, yeah, it's Japanese. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Ran is is a, is a, or Ran is uh, where there's a scene of uh, color coded armies in their red armor and their red flags going to battle, and so that is where he used inspiration for the red sand and all the ships going through the with the red uh, sand blowing up in the air. Um, you know, so obviously Amazing. a huge fan of Kurosawa. Obviously, um, <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, Just like Lucas. clearly. So, I mean, Just it, that in the old imagery. <laughs> right and much like much like all film buffs yeah know, well that's true uh, <laughs> and, and there's there's a lot of little different ones but the last one i'll leave you with is citizen kane uh there's a mirror shot uh as, yeah. as yeah, uh, well, yeah yeah as kane's walking by and it's the infinite mirrors and it's a very similar imagery uh that they use for ray when she's looking into the mirrors uh he, kane didn't actually uh start snapping and doing a musical Missed number an opportunity. Or anything, that's what i said citizen kane yeah. i always said could have been improved if he had just <laughs> yeah. started clicking in that mirror exactly <laughs> exactly well, but uh yeah very similar. amazing see this is the beauty of kevin is he knows so much and that's why we, we talk in intangible undecidable facts uh <laughs> there's your there's your paradox there <laughs> i mean and then Kevin bring some actual want... fucking references to you know keep us right <laughs> <laughs> and i want to touch on one of the references that he made i want to touch on the three outlaw samurai that you were talking about in terms yeah. of social class and it's kind of interesting because uh kyle ren uh uses that on Ray at one point. He says, come with me. You're nobody. Yeah. You know, you have that aspect of social class. I'm from, I'm from, (laughs) I'm I'm Skywalker royalty. It's in my blood, you know? And so who are you? You're nothing. You should come with me. I'll make you somebody. You know, the idea of uh, social class playing into that as well. I thought that was really, really clever. And I I had forgotten about that because I've seen Three Outlaw Samurai. Fell asleep on it twice. But uh, it wasn't a pirate uh, movie. That was the problem. It wasn't a pirate movie. That's the real reason why. But yeah. And so, I mean, that's that's really great. I like those references. The Citizen Kane one, I mean, I, I didn't even know if it was going to be a reference because I did think about it. I was like, oh, I did that in 1941. That's nice. I like that. But I never really <laughs> thought that he was actually referencing Kane because why would he put a reference to Citizen Kane in there? Is it because of the fact that, oh, everyone's trying to figure out what Rosebud is, but no one really knows uh, until the yeah, end. So the idea that Ray doesn't necessarily know who yeah. she is and she'll have to figure it out. No parents and all that. Okay, well, okay, I yeah, get the yeah, reference there's, there. There's, there's some, no there's some use. We worked it out using <laughs> science. Yeah, deductible, <laughs> rational fucking reasoning. Oh, and also another fun trivia fact. Uh, the reason Porgs were designed the way they were is because they wanted to make yeah. them easy for kids to draw. Oh, no. Well, okay, uh, that's not what I was thinking. No I was thinking um, they actually – they. they found it easy when they were shooting in Donegal where I, was, I yeah. recently just was I just came back uh, yesterday they had such an issue trying to find Luke yeah, they had, yeah he was there and they had such an issue with the puffin population on the island that they had to CG over to the top of them to, rather than or they found it easier rather than blacking them out of each scene they CG'd over the top of them with the poor creation the idea so I, I thought that was ingenious it's a great way to yeah, make no, an irritating yeah, animal something that actually problem. adds life to the scene and also probably save yourself yeah. some I suppose money <laughs> 
<laughs> when yeah, you, no, uh, when you re- reaping all that pork toy commerce, then I mean, uh, problem solved. <laughs> oh man, what a right. trash! Yeah, yeah, but it, that's great. I, I'm, they're great. Yeah, it's 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 uh, the porgs were one of the biggest surprises for me, just because uh, we talked about this off there. But I just I I was not a fan when I saw them. I did see a clip of them and was thinking, oh, I don't I don't like the look of them, and they're going to be probably annoying, <laughs> and I I don't want another situation on our hands where we just a little characters sell merchandise and then i saw the movie and they were delightful and i thought absolutely hilarious whenever they showed up that should be the takeaway for all all audience members uh the the worst thing that we all thought about it was actually pretty good so there you go (laughs) (laughs) anyway there's there's plenty more in there you know there's a theme of connection connection to the force connection to people han uh the idea you know if you if you look at carefully uh leia uh, if you look at the visual dictionary the the braid that she has in her hair is actually an alderanian uh morning braid apparently <laughs> and it's kind of cool because you see that han solo is actually really all over the film you know that the idea that he is hovering over everything and even the last line that luke says to ben before he actually shows that he's a force projection he says um see you around, see you around kid and that's a line from also uh, New the Hope, dice, which is really, really which great. for some reason a force projection which yeah. is pretty cool <laughs> yeah because well, he too. wasn't there to yeah. give him to leia he couldn't yeah, exactly no, it's, it's, and that's what's cool it's a nice touch so those dice were only seen in a new hope they're never yep they're never addressed again and so uh jj abrams didn't even put them in in uh <laughs> force awakens uh, you know it's just kind of an afterthought and someone was looking back through old set photos and saw them there and thought oh we got to include those and i don't think there's ever an official explanation but rumor is that those are maybe the dice he used to win the falcon from lando <laughs> uh, well i'm That'd sure we'll awesome. find out even though we don't need to find out in the upcoming hansel uh. film <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe not. You'll never not know. True. But um, also, uh, the theme of sacrifice is another one. If you guys want to pick it apart, there are three sacrifices, one in each act. You'll have Paige that's there. You'll have Holdo, and you'll also have Skywalker. Uh, Legend is what we talked about as well. Just closing thoughts on um, Skywalker. We, we we didn't necessarily deliberate quickly on how Skywalker leaves. Were you guys okay with the fact that this was a, a force projection? Because to, uh, to me, I'll, I'll go in and say that I'm fine with it because as we were talking about earlier, you know, the idea that, you know, Jedi only think of others. He's not using the force to attack. He's kind of using the same way that like uh, Yoda used it against Dooku in Attack of the Clones where uh, he uses the force in order to exercise self-defense which i think is kind of interesting and the fact that this is a force projection you go to like well shit luke really did read those books because i had never seen that yeah, before ever <laughs> and so i thought it was kind of cool to see him do that i i remember hearing while i was at the comic book shop the nerds complaining that why didn't he go there physically and you're like dudes come on put put it together if he goes there physically he know he's going to get destroyed right off the yeah. bat the idea is to stall so that the other ones can get away <laughs> fucking watch the goddamn movie yeah, did you Frick? see those fucking dragon ball z lasers he wasn't surviving that <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah, those atm sixes yeah, are going to really destroy hell. the shit out of those <laughs> but yeah no you're totally right I, it's uh i i agree in that i i kind of prefer it was funny because at the time i watched it i turned to my brother and said look he kind of looks a little more like he did in return of the jedi it's kind of like he lost a little weight for this scene and they yeah. cut his hair well, and I was like, what the hell is that? Th- That's a great little homage to that. And then, but I was like, but did he really just cut his hair before going off into space? Was that his idea? You know, and I was like, <laughs> and that is like the giveaway, you know, that's kind of, but I didn't see it at the time when it, when it was revealed that he was still back in the planet. I was like, whoa, oh, okay, that's cool. I just thought it was a, a weird 
like design choice or something like that. But yeah, I I I was to, I was surprised, but I was pleasantly surprised. I thought it ex it explained a lot about why he kept dipping and dodging and stuff like that. I was like, if you can fucking bend backwards to dodge a fucking rushing lightsaber, you can slight the legs off this guy. So give it your all. But uh, he, he was obviously <laughs> yeah, you work out. Oh, it's self defense. He's a projection. It would give the game away if he if he fucking start trying to register punches he can't register so I mean, uh yeah no I, I thought it was a great idea i think it does tie in really nicely into the idea that he wants to be seen mostly as a a legend or an inspiration for the new generation that, than as a conscious fighter in the next war uh so i think that the mm -hmm. idea that he's there in spirit rather than in person is something far more interesting and far more usable that's so beautiful than, what you just yeah. said is great he's there in spirit exactly it's beautiful so i that's that's where i came from yeah i was i was so glad they explained the shave and a haircut bit because <laughs> as, as soon as i saw that i'm like this is ridiculous yeah, he this is service bullshit to, what is this but, but i mean yes yeah, yeah i get it but well, it's it's so cool because he's showing up as the projection of what ben saw him last no right? that's i know that i that's i'm talking about seeing it for the first time i totally am on board i was just gonna make that exact point that i think the reason that he did that was because that's the last time he saw him so that's how Ben sees him and and uh, I think it was also to intimidate because he was also standing over him about to murder him with a lightsaber <laughs> yeah. when he looked like that it was a scary image as the way that we saw it from his memories yeah. so I think it was a bit of an intimidation and to bring back those old feelings um, also when Luke moves his uh, foot on the salt on the sand yeah. it doesn't make a mark in the sand yeah, you cool. see again on multiple viewings um, I'm, I'm becoming okay with it uh, at first I was very mad about it. I mean, I mean, I just I left very disappointed because I waited all this time to see Luke kick ass physically. You know, kick ass, not outsmart him. Um, so I was very disappointed. What a letdown! He's using his brains. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, you know, it's like I wanted to see him and all this. <laughs> Luke Skywalker doesn't use his brains. <laughs> Give me a break! Give me a break! <laughs> but I wanted to see, you know, in 30 years of Jedi training, you know, how good he is yeah. with a lightsaber and how powerful he is. And then when they killed him off after not even letting him swing a lightsaber, I was like, oh, come yeah, on. But the more I thought about it and, you know, I won't wear out the same old stuff I've said, but the more I've come to grips with it, understanding why they made the decisions. Jason made a lot of great points. And then also the fact that he was, uh, I, I think, like you both touched upon, uh, trying to be more peaceful, like uh, almost like a peaceful protester or some kind of a Gandhi figure instead of actually look Skywalker. What the fuck is this? Yeah. It's not my Star Wars. But, yeah. <laughs> but you know, yeah. he doesn't have to wield a lightsaber. <laughs> he he can be more productive and more powerful by actually not swinging yeah, do a you lightsaber. See that fucking backwards band? Holy shit! That's yeah. sixty something. So, <laughs> yeah. So once you check out, once you once you give up those expectations, you know the and you're okay with why they did it. It makes a lot more sense and is more effective as I've come to realize. So I'm definitely coming to grips with it. It's, it's a lot better now upon a third viewing. Great. Yeah. You mentioned that foot in the sand is cool because it's, it's what it's a classic three beat structure for that. You have the establishment, which is the first man foot that leaves the mark. Essentially when he goes up and he goes to see, and he sees the ATM sixes with Kylo Ren's. And then after that reinforcement, Kylo Ren leaves a mark when he shows the foot and then it, subversion, Luke doesn't leave a mark and you're like, oh shit, it's meant, you're meant to see it that way. It's kind of yeah. cool. But anyway, so that's it. There's many links between the films as well. We pointed some out. Uh, like, I don't know if I recorded this earlier, but I mean, the, the, the fact that the ship is called the Radis, I thought that was really great. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Holdo uses it to smash through the, the entire yeah, the um, first, uh, order. first order fleet. Mm -hmm. 
Light tracking, uh, light speed tracking is referenced in, in Rogue, Rogue One, One in the archives right. as well. Uh-huh. That's so cool. You know, and the, like Jin pull, pulls it out and she's like, oh, what the fuck is this? But anyway, so I think we've talked this one to death now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I just, before, I mean, before we sign off, I just have to say, um, you know, rest in peace, Admiral Akbar. He was killed off screen in a very, oh, you know, I quick so way. And just rest <laughs> in peace. Yes, yes. It, and, and it was a trap. <laughs> it was killed in an ambush. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> I mean, tragic. Tragic that the fish guy died. I, I Everyone's mean, favorite Mon Calamari. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't the know. guy from the hammer ship from Rogue One. I liked his jib. <laughs> it's great, man. Radis was fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah. Give me a Corvette. Hey, that guy. He's got. He's, he knows his own shit. Yeah. He, he's he's not so sunk into traps. He makes traps. Not <laughs> a fucking. There you what go. A guy. Yeah. <laughs> I I could have gone. I could have gone on for another hour or two, but at Lee has to go because Maria's gonna fucking yeah, kill. Yeah, I am gonna get <laughs> um, killed. I'm, there's no force going for Lee. <laughs> oh, well, there might be soon it, so, if you I don't mean, go. I, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff we didn't talk about, so well, we're not going to really apologize for it. You guys go make up your mind for yeah. the rest of the show. You're, you're, you're a broom so, kid from anyway. here on out. <laughs> I want to say I want to say thank you to Kevin for coming on and talking this with us yes. and listening to our, our overly complicated non-childlike takes on on The Last Jedi mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah thanks again man so I don't know any last thoughts that you want to yeah, plug, plug in where we can find you online plug your uh, show well thanks again for having me on I mean it's it's a pleasure as uh, it was before I had a lot of fun again and uh, you know I talked to you guys online and back and forth with Twitter and it's really cool to get these in-depth takes and be a part of the discussion so uh, thank you for that and then uh, I do a podcast every week called Real Spoilers so if you want to listen to that it's it doesn't go as scholarly in depth as you guys <laughs> tend to do it's more of a fun uh, you know we you talk know, so about, it's enjoyable uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say they're both enjoyable in different ways but we we don't analyze as much as just have fun with it uh, we have uh, you know we talk about the biggest movie of the week it's not necessarily the best movie of the week uh, sometimes we get a good one but more often than not uh, we pick apart a very silly movie uh, a lot of dumb decisions the bad ones are always more fun to talk about so uh, if you want to follow us you can subscribe on iTunes Google Play wherever uh, just look up real spoilers real with two e's and then uh, at real spoilers on Twitter and you can follow me at Kevin R bracket cool Lee yeah uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Lee Paul Brady that is, that is pretty much at the moment that I mean we're into 2018 now so I'm gonna be uh, I'm rallying some sort of resolution crap to try and uh, improve output uh, do a couple more things with my life uh, that, uh, hopefully I'll be able to share with you on Twitter I'm also on Instagram at Lee Paul Brady I think as well uh, and I contribute occasionally to the Atlantic SC Instagram so you can follow us there but yeah further musings on all films that are coming we're getting in the Oscar season so I'm going to be sort of having already seen some of them and ignoring most of them because I don't really care but uh, thoughts they're, they're out there you can you can check them out Jason very cool and you can find me at Jason B. Michael on Twitter uh, uh, also, be sure to follow the show at Atlantic SC. You know all this shit. Like our Facebook page. Say, uh, Come see us on Instagram, like Lee said. I want to thank everyone who's encouraged uh, me with the 15-second uh, horror challenge. Oh, yes, video. yes. I, uh, I finished uh, 11th, which is great, out of 300 submissions. And uh, actually, uh, to this day, 
uh, uh, Troma actually put it on their uh, website, and it's hit over 30,000 views so far, which is fantastic. Huge, so thanks, crazy. everyone, so, for yeah. accusing that. Yeah, it's a lot of motivation to actually continue making films. So I'm looking into that right now, trying to decipher what the hell kind of story I feel like telling. Yeah, right. Uh, because, I mean, I can't, I can't do Star Wars every day. Yeah, I mean, you can't just before, do 15 so. seconds at a time. So, I mean, you have to kind of work it <laughs> no, up. No, exactly. It would be a, <laughs> 30 second light film speed next. jumping in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, six, I'll start with 16 or something. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Don't, don't jump too much. Don't double your workload. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, as Lee said, we're going to try to work on output. We're, we're still trying to figure out how the show works, even after almost yeah, uh, we're what, got, two yeah, years Yeah, we're now? near two years. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so we're still trying to figure things out. Thanks a, a lot for sticking uh, with us. Uh, we love you all very much. Happy New Year again. And mm-hmm. we're going to see you guys soon with a new episode on... Uh, oh, yeah, wrap up the year. <laughs> well, wrap up our top films of 2017. So that would be pretty cool. All right, so thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.